Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. I'm John Agurney. I'm the box office columnist for Adam Tickets, head writer of Cinemaholics.com, and every once in a while I write a book or two. He is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics.com. It is, of course, Will Ashton. Hello, John. How's he doing, Will? I'm okay. How are you doing? Uh, glad to be here. And guess who's sure. also here? Joining us this week, he is one of our staff writers for Cinemaholics, plus a co-host of our other podcast, Extra Milestone on the Cinemaholics Podcast Network. It is Sam Noland. Hello, John. It's good to be back as always. Sam, we had to have you on because, of course, when it comes to episodes of the show that deal in the sci-fi space exploration genre, I can think of few people mm. who love that genre as feverishly as you do. So it's great to mm. have you. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for thank you for thinking of me so uh, graciously. And don't forget, in our fall, I think it was our summer preview episode, Ad Astra was <laughs> one of your highest anticipated, right? Yeah, funny how that works, isn't it? That was yeah. back when it was a summer movie release, mm -hmm. and uh, it was about four weeks away from being released, and there was no trailer or fanfare whatsoever, mm -hmm. but I still had the chutzpah to put it on my anticipated <laughs> list, uh, yeah. and, it, and it came back to bite me. But here we are. Uh, it's released at last. Uh, hopefully the wait was worthwhile. All right. Well, I have no idea what you or will think of this movie. So it's going to be fantastic to talk about that one shortly, but yeah. first you can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com. You can write in the show anytime by sending us an email, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support our show by becoming one of our monthly patrons and find out all about the perks and ways you can do that, simply go to the link, patreon.com slash cinemaholics. And if you do not want to give financially, if it's not within your realm of doing so, please consider reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and helping us bring the show to more listeners around the world. We're going to do things a little differently this week. Ad Astra is our featured review, but we saw a bunch of other things that we do want to talk about. So... We are packing our off-topic section with kind of a review roundup, bunch of films we're going to get to here. And I'm, again, I haven't been super clued in on what... <laughs> so, okay, we have a, a document. <laughs> oh, boy, this is going to be hard to explain. We have a shared Google Doc with the movies that we, we've written down that we're going to talk about. I'm looking at it right now. And as I'm talking, Will Ashton... <laughs> Well, Ashton goes to the <laughs> the Velocipaster and changes the spelling so that the P in Velocipaster is capitalized. That's what the title of the movie is. I was trying to do it subtly, uh, but all right, uh, fine. Let the listeners know. Oh, no. You ain't going to edit a Google Doc subtly when John's around. That's right. That's right. I'm, I do my like that. Um, to this. I like that I have Grammarly on Google Docs, and it was underlined when it was just Velocipaster, but when I capitalized it, it went away. Yeah, so it was like, uh, yeah, was like yeah, that's the right one. <laughs> you know, what, since we're since we're breaking the fourth wall of sorts and bringing up the Google Doc, one thing I love is that up up in the corner it says, uh, "Also on this doc is Will Ashton and an anonymous chinchilla." John, well, yeah, they always I, have like stuff like that. It's weird like that. that John is the anonymous chinchilla, but well, what? Sam, uh, so be it. On mine, it says you're the anonymous iguana. I'll be. Damned. I yeah. won't be caught dead being an iguana, but whatever they choose to assign to me. Now as you talk, I just, I just my name am I not an anonymous? Yeah, we see you, dude. There's no I'm anonymous. Yeah, I get the chinchilla and the iguana, but I I didn't know what I was, so I don't know why you two You're are just anonymous. Will. We're we're a little bit more uh, subtle, Will. We we don't just guess, put our names yeah. on everything. Yeah. 
That's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. But all right, as I was saying before, um, before Velocipaster was rudely re-edited, um, <laughs> we're talking about a bunch of films. You mean corrected. Corrected, yes. <laughs> and I almost want to start with the Velocipaster now that we brought it up, but we should say- Might as well, two- might as well. Well, I do want to say that there are two other big wide releases this week, Downton Abbey and Rambo Last Blood. We will get to those, mm. but okay, fine. Will Ashton, you saw the Velocipaster. This is a this was originally based on like a short film, right, from a bunch of years ago. This I think hit some festivals last year and is now getting like a 2019 release. I really don't know to the extent of like is it just VOD at this point? Like it's on Prime. Yeah, I believe it's VOD. I, I actually had a screener of it, and um, uh, I I get like some screeners for a lot of like B movies that I kind of like. I don't ignore them, but I'm just like nothing really ever stands out to me. But I remember seeing the trailer for this. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then I've actually talked to um, my co-host on Ogre Tits Ogre, Chris Sheridan. He was like, oh, you have to watch this movie. It's really fun. Oh, so I checked it out. Um, it's only yeah, an I mean, hour and 15 not... minutes. So pretty quick watch, huh? Yeah, it's actually uh, 70 minutes. I don't know why they add 10 on Google, but uh-huh. it's yeah, it's like a lean 70 minutes. It's really short. Can, um, can I ask a question before you reveal sure. what this movie is about? Is Velocipaster... Sure. <laughs> About a pastor. <laughs> a is it about a pastor who brings velociraptors to Christ? No. Um, <laughs> ah. Well, the premise of the movie is based on a... Uh, it's kind of funny that I corrected it uh, on Google because the premise of the movie was actually based on a um, spell check uh, change where he was writing velociraptor and it changed it to velocipastor. He's like, I can make a movie out of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, the movie is just the bare premise of it is it's about a priest who, uh, through, uh, an incident in China, uh, that kind of becomes like a velociraptor, like Hulk style at night. <laughs> an incident and, in China. <laughs> yeah. I mean, My that's, a, that's about as much one of those. That's about <laughs> as much detail as the movie goes into. So, um, yeah. clearly I, I, I've never been to Singapore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So he, uh, befriends a local prostitute and they kind of go use his power to take down a lot of bad guys in this uh i think it's in boston but i'm not 100 sure where the movie takes place but um yeah the movie itself uh it's fun like it's definitely based i while i was watching it i was like i wonder if this is like one of those movies that's like kind of like hobo with a shotgun or machete that's like based on like a fake grindhouse trailer and I looked up afterwards, and that's exactly what it was based on. <laughs> um, and it feels like it, because it's definitely very haphazard. Like, it kind of has, like, this um, kind of throw everything at the wall and see what sticks approach. Uh, and it's also intentionally, like, very low budget. Something they kind of play up throughout the movie. Actually, not kind of. They, they do that throughout. Uh, to some mixed results. And that's kind of how I feel about the film. Like, it, I think as a comedy, it's very hit and miss, touch and go, as far as what works and what doesn't. But I think the sincerity is there enough to like as far as like these kind of winking, ironic films like it's not like Sharknado where it's like they clearly just don't care. Like this feels like there is like some genuine effort and heart put into it. Uh, Mm. And uh, I think the performances from the lead actors, uh, they I don't know if they're necessarily good, but they get the tone of the film right. And I think they definitely help to carry it over into something that is generally I mean, it's a certainly a very enjoyable 70 minutes. Um as far as like these kind of grindhouse paches go, it's not. I didn't like it as much as like Death Proof or the aforementioned Hubba with the Shotgun, but I definitely preferred it over Machete Kills uh, and some other ones I've forgotten about over the years. So 
yeah, overall, I'd give it a B minus, kind of the same as I as I was with the original the original Machete, where it's like I think it's kind of hit and miss. It's not really consistent enough for me to praise it wholeheartedly or criticize it completely. But there's enough inspiration there that if you watch it with your friends and have a couple beers and have fun, I think you'll enjoy it. So that's a B minus for Velocipaster. I do want to bring up really quickly. I have the the plot summary on IMDb and I love it. So okay. After losing his parents, a priest travels to China, where he inherits a mysterious ability that allows him to turn into a dinosaur. At first horrified by this new power, a hooker convinces him to use it to fight crime. Period. Mm-hmm. And ninjas. Yeah. There are ninjas in the movie. <laughs> I didn't want to yeah, give that away, it. but I know that was on the IMDb page. Yeah. The only other things I heard about this movie was that apparently the film itself was like really tweaked with to make it look old and scratched and things like that. Like the film, uh, film, not really, not as much as like Hobo with the shotgun and a couple others. Okay, I heard it was noticeable, but okay. I mean, they they definitely try to have that aesthetic in certain scenes, but it it definitely feels put upon in a way that doesn't really feel like it felt more organic in Hobo with the shotgun to me. All right, well, that's Velocipaster. Did you have a, a, a final mm. grade for this one? Yeah, I gave it a B minus. A B minus. Okay, B minus. Wow. What a world. Okay, so that's I mean, it was between a B minus and a C plus, <laughs> but I had enough fun with it that I was like, yeah, yeah. B minus, it's fine. All right. Sam, All are right. you going to check out the Velocipaster? Yeah, it's uh, I have I honestly to be totally honest, I haven't heard about it until just now, but it sounds it sounds neat uh and it actually sort of tangentially relates to uh one of the mini reviews I'm going to be talking about. So, it's mm-hmm. uh very, very appropriate. So I'm, I'm very, very curious. curious now. I'm curious to see this incident in China. Something about that phrase has just been <laughs> has just sent my mind a running. You're just thinking of like Orlando Bloom popping out of a barrel or something. <laughs> a vast. Yeah. So yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So that's Velocipaster. Yeah, it look, looks like an interesting one. Sam, you saw you saw a movie that. I know a lot of people have been really heavily critiquing Rambo Last Blood, a movie that I did. I've had no interest in. I, I liked the last Rambo enough that I was like, I don't think we need another one of these. It was like what a decade ago, the last one came out, but this is the fifth Rambo, I yeah. believe. Mm-hmm. What do what, you think? What what is this? Should is this worth seeking out, or do you have to be like the the heaviest Rambo fan to appreciate this one? I don't. No, and this is a, this is a very weird movie. So, uh, so to clarify, as John mentioned, this is a uh, the fifth uh, and presumably based on the title, uh, final movie starring Sylvester Stallone as John Rambo, uh, who in the first movie was a Vietnam veteran who returned home from the war, uh, went to go find his long lost you know pal from you know the good old days, a boot camper, uh, some along those lines. Uh, turns out he died a long time ago, and someone else has moved into his house. So he's effectively lost nothing. Uh, and on his way into the nearby town, I believe uh, somewhere in Washington, uh, is uh, begins to be harassed by the local uh, sheriff, who's uh, seems to have it in for for uh, for veterans and. In being harassed by the sheriff and the other uh, other officers on the force is sort of post-traumatic stressed into going back into war mode. 
and uh, secludes himself in the forest and just starts fighting back uh, really gruesomely and, and really effectively because he was a great soldier, as we find out. Uh, First Blood, released in uh, 1982, is a really, really great movie. Uh, it is not what you would expect based on sort of uh, just the key bits of information going in. Like, oh, it's a Stallone movie from the 80s. Uh, it seems to have some sort of an action milieu about it. Uh, but it is not, it is not what you would expect from that description. It's actually very thoughtful, uh, very relevant exploration of, you know, just the, the treatment of veterans in this country and, uh, how we can be more sensitive to that and how dangerous it can be and just how lonely of an experience that is. Uh, and then three years later, Rambo First Blood Part Two came out, which is a dumb title, by the way. Uh, and flew immediately off the rails. The titling for all the Rambo movies makes no sense. It's like First Blood, Rambo, First Blood Part 2, Rambo 3, Rambo, Rambo Last Blood. Yeah. Yes, Abed from Community has covered this subject thoroughly, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, when when Fast and Furious has a more consistent naming scheme than you do, then uh, maybe it's time to get your get your get your titles together. But what's done is done. Uh, and what we had was uh, in Rambo: First Blood Part Two. It turns out uh, uh, Rambo was sent to like like a prison and is and is uh, in like a chain gang, smashing rocks just for just for the hell of it. Uh, and, uh, the, the, his former sergeant comes in and says, Hey Rambo, we got another job for you. Go back to Vietnam and, uh, rescue all these prisoners of war. And he does. And that's just kind of it. And it's like, wait, did no one watch the first movie? It was about the horror, the horror of war. Now you're just going to send him back. And it's just a completely generic action movie. Um, well, isn't, isn't the whole like idea behind Rambo it's like Hollywood trying to reinvent the Vietnam War as something that like we would have won if Sylvester Stallone had been there is that is that fair to say or am i just yeah, shouting into the that, wind here? no that's not you're not shouting into the wind cuz cuz they go out of their way in on countless occasions to show how Rambo is just this unstoppable force and is maybe the greatest soldier they they specifically say in uh, first blood part 2 that they ran some sort of a computer simulation or something and said you're one of the top 3 most qualified for this mission what i want to know is who the hell were the other two and why couldn't <laughs> yeah. they have gone to them who are the but- other bloods yeah, who were who were the other Rambo's? Probably Schwarzenegger and uh, who was who was <laughs> John who Claude Van Damme. Yeah, Steven, Steven Seagal, Seagal, maybe Kurt, maybe Kurt Russell. It could have been anybody. Jack but Eddie they, Murphy. There you go, <laughs> Eddie Murphy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they but they picked Stallone and they turned they turned this movie into what. If if the character was named something different, would probably just have been another Sylvester Stallone action movie, you know, filler for the weekend or something like that. Like as a movie, uh, First Blood Part Two is not like particularly grievous. I mean, it's not very that good. It's not. It doesn't develop any emotional connections or whatever. Uh, but the action's kind of fun. If it was simply, if it simply didn't exist in the same continuity in the first one. Uh, I have a feeling it might not be like 
regarded as a classic or anything, but it wouldn't be regarded as uh, as one of the franchises that I think famously just completely missed the point right out of the gate when it came to the sequels. I feel the same way about the third one. Uh, that's just another really generic action movie that's even more forgettable than the second one. I honestly cannot remember. I've seen Rambo 3 and I cannot remember a single thing that happened in the movie. Right? Yeah. Like it, nothing. It's a... Like I know I saw it and then I was like, that wasn't good. And then it completely <laughs> left my brain. Completely evaporated. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, Rambo's former sergeant with whom he's developed something of a connection uh, is kidnapped by the Russians and is uh, who are invading Afghanistan. This is 1988 when Rambo three is released. Uh, and, and the really heartless thing about that one is that he's approached initially and is like, hey, Rambo, we got another mission for you. We have all these uh, Afghani uh, prisoners of war. They need your help. They're being, they're being attacked by the Russians. And he says, no, I'm all done with war. I ain't never going back. But it's not until his commander. I, I did. Had, I was hoping he had a Stallone impression. Uh, who never had a Stallone impression. Yeah. It, oh, yeah. It'll be, I'll be, I'll be breaking it out a few more times throughout this. Okay. But regardless, uh, uh, it's not until his commander is captured that he that he gives a damn. And there's something just really frustrating about that, especially when we've already established that he has no qualms about going back into a war zone. So it's like, why not? You're clearly great at it. Uh, so that one, I think, is honestly even worse than the second one, which is already pretty bad in and of, in and of itself. Uh, and then it kind of died for for a while. They wanted to make a fourth one, but Stallone was like, "No, nah, I ain't got no heart for it no more. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do it. I'm hey, not in. I'm not. I in got new no blood to put in his heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's. I. I'll bet he said that. Like this heart ain't pumping no more blood. I ain't doing it no more. Uh, but. <laughs> oh, this is getting it's getting a little playful i love it yes uh and then it wasn't until like the mid 2000s that they said that he was like hey yeah gotta, i'm feeling it again i'm going back i'll be rambo one last time uh in a movie simply titled rambo as as will uh, mentioned earlier and yeah. i'll be honest rambo 4 not that bad i like, like it's rambo not for honestly yeah it's, it's, okay. it's perfectly fine. The thing I like about it is that it takes what I was sort of frustrated by with Rambo 3, uh, just the, you know, will he, won't he with with this, uh, you know, formerly traumatized soldier who I guess got over it and really doesn't care anymore. Uh, it sort of takes that and puts him in a place where it seems like he's sort of lost all hope. He's living uh, uh, somewhere in uh, – I, I, can't recall the exact country, but somewhere in Asia, just in this uh, forested uh, uh, civilization. In, in, in China. Is it China? Yeah. It's, no, no, it's, I, was, I just, was calling back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Whoosh. I see what Whoosh. you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's no uh, incident in China here. Um, but yeah, re- regardless. Uh, and he's sort of through sheer coincidence really uh learns that of a band of christian missionaries have sort of been captured by these by these pirates that are going around on like their speedboats and stuff and says eh, we got nothing left you know it's either live for nothing or die for something uh and it's and it's very much a generic action movie but it at least it's it's at least uh sort of wise about the character i can i can believe that this is the same person uh that i saw in rambo first blood right um because so stallone, he, stallone directed yeah. it right which played a yeah lot he, into that, well he he directed the second and third one as well i believe 
He did not. No, no, no. That's not true. Oh, he, he directed. Uh, he directed a lot of the Rocky movies. Um, okay. Oh my god. I, I thought he directed another Rambo movie besides the fourth one. Nope, just just the fourth one. Although oh, he was, uh, he he wrote and uh, produced a good deal of them, so he okay. certainly has a hand yeah. in he, uh, where he this co-wrote, character was gone. He co-wrote Rambo three, and mm-hmm. Peter McDonald directed the third one. I think. Yeah, uh, I I, I happen I to know also fun fact. Uh, the, the second one was directed by George P. Cosmatos, uh, who happens to be the father of Panos Cosmatos, the director of last yeah. year's Mandy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. uh, what a what a fun little bit of synergy that doesn't really have anything to do with yeah. what we were talking about. But regardless, it's just fun. It's fun. Uh, well, or at the, least well, it would actually, be. I do I I do know actually why I think he directed the second ones because that director has like a notorious history of like letting the stars like direct the movie. Yeah. So he like I think he like uncredited directed the second Rambo movie. Uh, I'm not yeah. surprised. Yeah, because that's kind of what happened with Tombstone. Like Kurt Russell is like to, reportedly the secret director of the movie, and I think yeah. he did the same thing with Stallone with Cobra. Hmm. So that's where yeah, I, think I, I believe it. Makes it. So, yeah, anyway. it makes sense. Uh, and it ju- it it only just occurred to me that like two years in a row, a famous Sylvester Stallone character went to Russia. And like save the day. It was Rocky Four and Rambo Three in back to back years. So the eighties. What do you know? Yeah, there you go. And if I could change, you all could change. Well, look how that turned out, Sylvester. But regardless. Wow. Okay. All right. Also, <laughs> the fourth Rambo. I looked it up. It was in Thailand. Thailand. That's right. I couldn't. I couldn't recall it off the top of my head. Um, yeah, and I and I believe in uh, in Rambo Three. Rambo was actually living in Thailand before the uh, inciting incident sort of kicked yeah. things off. So well, I'm was... surprised I forgot that too because I'm so Rambo Four is the first Rambo I saw in theaters, and the reason it kind of had an effect on me was my sister was a missionary in Thailand around the time I saw this movie, so it oh, kind of no freaked me out a little bit. Yeah. Wow. Well, good thing. Uh, Rambo was it, there. Uh, Rambo was <laughs> good <laughs> thing. Nothing happened. Good yes, thing yes. they weren't captured by pirates uh, right. without the aid of a disenfranchised Vietnam veteran. It's it's a good thing that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, well, but re- yeah, wasn't Rambo though like kind of trying to do the same thing that Stallone did with uh, Rocky Balboa, the movie Rocky Balboa, where it was like kind of like trying to unofficially tie things up. Well, I guess not unofficially, uh, like officially did kind of. Sort of. It doesn't. It doesn't really have the sense of finality. Uh, but he did say it was the last one. I think he said like, "Oh, I'm n- not. I can't do the voice." But he said, "I was like, I'm 99 percent sure it's over." You know, like that kind of. I thing. mean, it's not like we were mastering the voices, so you can do yours. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't got. I can't. I can't measure up. But yeah, I All think right. he essentially was like, "Oh, I don't think. I don't think I have it in me or whatever." And but then, of course, years later, here we are. Yeah, here we are. Eleven years later, uh, eventually. Said, yeah, I'm going to do it one last time. We're going to call Last Blood, you know, because the first one was called First Blood. This is the last one, so it was called Last Blood. You know, it sort of makes sense. Uh, you just got to think the- about it a little bit. <laughs> 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 we could go on all day. Uh, yeah, so uh, so it was after the fourth one. You know, that one ended. It didn't really have, like, a final note as if to say, like, yes, this is the send-off of the character. But it could have ended there, and it would have been just fine. Uh, and now we have Rambo five last blood. Um, and as much as I dislike three for just how, just how aggressively mediocre it is, I think Rambo last blood 
might be the worst of them. And I know I'm certainly not alone uh, in saying that this has not been getting positive reviews by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's sitting firmly at a 30% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is nothing to brag about. I've heard some people say it's, if not the worst movie of the year, it's certainly one of the worst movies of the year. I I wouldn't go that far. Okay. It's 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 towards the bottom of the list for sure. But uh, for for one very specific reason that I'll mention, um, okay. I would I would not call it one of the worst movies of the year. But what I do think this is is the first Rambo movie to be off-puttingly bad for a couple reasons. Um, so basically, what happens is that it, at the end of Rambo four. Uh, Rambo decided, yeah, I'm going to go back to America. You know, I have, I have, my faith has been restored. I'm going back home. The last shot of it is, uh, Rambo walking towards what is uh, implied to be like his old house or something. It's got his name on the mailbox. Uh, it's in the middle of a field. It's like, I'm going back to my farmhouse. This is where I belong. This is where I was born. I'm going all the way back, back to my roots. Uh, and it's like, okay, cool. So we cut to 11 years later, if, if we're to assume that it takes place in real time. Um, and, uh, he has, uh, a housekeeper now, um, who has a granddaughter and the three of them live together. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the granddaughter is in high school and, uh, you know, she has a bunch of friends. She's like, oh, I'm going off to my friend's house. Rambo's like, okay, be safe. Don't do nothing I wouldn't do, which isn't much. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, what happens is that, um, it turns out that, uh, Gabrielle is her name, the granddaughter. It turns out that Gabrielle's, uh, was sort of abandoned by her parents. Her mother died when she was very young, and her father just left her in the care of uh, of her grandmother and of Rambo. And so she finally, through the aid of one of her friends, uh, tracks down her father, who lives in Mexico, and they're just across the border somewhere in uh, Arizona, and says, hey, Uncle John, that's, that's what she calls him, Uncle John, I'm going, I found my dad, and I'm going to go over to Mexico to find him. And then I'm like, oh, gosh, oh, yeah. no. Oh no! What's what's gonna happen? And Rambo's like, "Hey, don't don't go over there. You're not gonna like what you're gonna find." Uh, and so she's like, "Okay, I won't. I'm going to my friend's house." And gets in the car and drives and might as well come across a fork in the road that says, "This way, friend's house," and "This way, Mexico." <laughs> in parentheses, plot of the movie. Yeah. Uh, Takes, wonder what takes, she's gonna do and then she goes I to her wonder, friend's house and the whole movie is just them playing code names and you're like where's rambo wouldn't that be great that would honestly uh, i would i would i'm more of a part that. cheesy guy myself <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's with the shoots and the ladders i don't understand any of this uh, uh yeah um are we but bad yeah so people? that's what, no 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 it's fine i don't think i think we're doing okay yeah uh, so what happens is that, uh, you know, go figure. She chooses, I'm going to Mexico, fate be damned or what have you. Uh, and of course, Mexico is just this evil hive of loathing and, and just, just not funness. Everyone there is just, is just, is just portrayed in a really negative light. Um, and uh, what happens is that she finds her dad. Of course, her dad wants nothing to do with her. Uh, and then her friend's like, oh, hey, let's go to a club and gets kidnapped by some uh, uh, some uh, drug dealers slash human traffickers. 
So you can kind of assume what uh, what goes down from there. And so it becomes, weirdly enough, I don't know if any of you know this, this is the second Sylvester Stallone movie in which he's uh, hunting down his kidnapped niece after the remake of Get Carter, which is one of the worst oh. remakes ever made. Yeah, I heard it's pretty bad. It's, it's pretty terrible. And there's even a very similar scene in a car uh, that in Get Carter is, is campy and hilarious. Um, and uh, in this one just just leaves no weight. And what happens, I, I kind of have to give it away, uh, give away what happens, partly because, A, I don't recommend that you go see this. So um, All right, well, to I don't... let people know, you can skip ahead if you don't want to be yeah. spoiled on Rambo Last Blood. I don't really care yes, yes. because By, I don't intend on ever watching this. Yeah. By all means, if you're if you're curious to see this, then I am going to kind of give away. It's not the ending or anything, but it happens sort of midway through and sets the movie going off in a different direction. But what happens is that uh, Stallone, in sort of like a in sort of a way that John Wayne does in The Searchers, where he's just fueled by his own prejudice to recover his uh, his kidnapped family, uh, eventually tracks down Gabrielle, starts to take her home, but uh, just through just sheer trauma or perhaps some physical injury or just shock, uh, she ends up passing away in in the car and. Um, it 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 makes him pretty mad and there's there's a funeral scene and obviously it's very tragic the thing is that this this uh this loss really doesn't carry any weight and i wish it had but the, but there's just no personality to this movie up until this point it'd be like the nightingale if every part was played by sam worthington just there's no there's no personality to it at all and so to the point where it's it's trying to have this huge gut punch but it really doesn't have anything and the other thing that occurred to me is that this character like four times in a row now has has in air quotes lost everything uh what you know in the uh in the second one he had this uh love interest in uh vietnam who got killed and he's like oh no i've lost everything and then then the third one his sergeant gets kidnapped and he's like oh no i've lost everything and then in the fourth one it's just, it doesn't even happen on screen he's just already lost everything and so i'm i've i've lost sympathy for this character i'm like dude i get it you have bad luck but man what what how long am i expected to care it's and the worst part is that at this point the movie thinks that it's earned the right to take out all of its bloody rage on just whoever happens to cross rambo's path and it becomes this just just horrifically violent like demented sort of home alone sequence where he takes down every member of this drug cartel um and and not that they're not bad people or anything, but it just feels so, so aggressive and so unnecessary, especially when we don't really know any of these. For all we know, these are just like foot soldiers who have nothing to do with it and who are being roped into it. But it get, it just gets comically violent, like a heart is ripped out of someone's chest on camera. I heard we that. see. We see like knives impaled through people's jugulars or like spiked bear traps or big barbed wire logs rolling down the hallway it's and and the audience i saw it with was just laughing their heads off and i'm like oh my is this 
Is this what you want to see? I mean, fair enough. I, listen, I don't want to be like judgmental or anything. If because I guess my my prediction is that they were going in just assuming some dumb action movie because that's kind of the face of Rambo at this point. Right. Um, and and the fact that they got that for like forty five minutes straight, I guess, was satisfactory because they applauded at the end uproariously like that is the first time that's happened in a movie i've been in in a long time probably years since i've heard an audience applaud a movie that wasn't like accompanied by a live orchestra or something they were really into this um but it just it showed me just how shallow this entire franchise is all it they're just all designed from first blood part two onwards uh, with sort of the exception of, of Rambo 4. But even then, they're all designed to just give themselves an excuse to be a dumb action movie at the cost of further tarnishing, uh, the original. Now, it's not, I don't, I don't like the original less because of this. I think that can still stand perfectly on its own. Um, but it's just this exploitative, violent, exercise uh that is exploitative of the audience and of the character like maybe that's the reason why i can't have any sympathy it's just this pit of inhumanity and with this movie they're finally just laying all their cards on the table saying we got nothing left we're picking up our ball we're going home we're giving it one last hurrah of of jingoistic yeah i'm a american soldier uh violent rage that and that this and this franchise just never had anywhere to go. There was never anywhere to go after the first one. You you watch the ending of that movie, I can see no reasonable place for the story to go after that. But they we got four of them, and I don't know who asked for this one specifically, but I I I hope they got what they wanted because I because I certainly didn't. The one compliment I will give this movie, uh, and it actually it it actually. Uh, makes for a lot weirdly enough is that it is mercifully short and it feels it it does not it does not uh it's not any longer than it has to be it's efficiently paced and honestly with a movie this not fun to watch i can at least welcome that so for that reason i'm actually going to be a little generous and give this like a high d plus is wow. that's where I'm that's where I'm ultimately landing on Ramble Last Blood. So yeah, do not recommend. It's uh yeah, not not a lot here. Yeah. Uh 89 minutes. That's that's a whole that's a whole runtime. So yeah, for uh, yeah. for an action film in 2019 that's kind of on the low side. So so yeah, honestly, you you had way more to say about Rambo: Last Blood than I thought you would. To be totally honest, <laughs> you know what? I'll, well, I actually i I watched all five of them very recently. I'd only seen the first one, but that was years ago. I barely remembered it. So I've actually sort of not grown attached to it because I don't like most of the movies. But i've I've become invested in watching this franchise crash and burn, and so. Yeah. I, I suppose it makes a little sense. Reminds me of the way you watch the Jurassic Park franchise, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's another one that just, that just sort of went for broke in the fifth one. But the difference is that one's going to keep going. Yay? Question mark. Well, this one could too. So, uh, at Cannes Film Festival, Sloan said he would actually keep doing these if this movie succeeds. <sighs> and this movie, the critics have been trashing it. Yes. Like, like you said, like 29, 30% on Ron Tomatoes, but it's made almost $20 million at the box office so far which is the second highest opening for a Rambo movie. And 
yeah, not great, but I mean, it's cinema score is like a B, so it's like serving its audience fine. So I, I don't know. We could, we could get another, we could get another yeah. Rambo. You know, I honestly don't see it. I don't, I don't see it going any more downhill from here. So that wouldn't like, that wouldn't like ruin my life to see Rambo, the real last blood. You thought that one was last. Wait till you see this. That wouldn't completely destroy my soul, but uh, whatever. There's, there's very little I can do about it besides voice my disdain for this last one. So yeah, not, not a fan of Rambo last blood. I hope the title is accurate to be perfectly honest. What were you going to say? Well, Oh, I just said last blood part two. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Um, yeah, Yeah. But, um, is it true that there is a sequence inspired by You Were Never Really Here where he has like a hammer and he's beating people up? Uh, it it all kind of blends together. But yeah, sure. there is indeed. There, he uses pretty much every weapon you could imagine in this movie, including his bare hands. Um, uh, I just think it's weird that like he saw You Were Never Really Here. Well, for one, it's kind of weird to imagine Stallone watching You Were Never Really Here. But seeing <laughs> yeah, that John scenes, Wick, like, apparently. Yeah, and just <laughs> yeah. like, well, like seeing You Were Never Really Here and it's just like, it's more of a like meditative film, uh, yeah. like like violence is intentionally not shown on screen, but he's like watching it with the hammer, like, hmm, I got a great idea for a movie right here. Right. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. put this in Rambo Part 5. One last thing. This does bring me a little bit of amusement. This was directed by a man named Adrian, which just brings me a oh, chuckle. Yeah. It's the guy did, um, it's the guy, oh, yeah. Uh, get oh, the I get Wall yeah, Street, That's yeah. Money Never Sleeps, Apocalypto, and All those more. classics. Well, no, wait, no. Wall, the Wall Street one was Oliver Stone. Did he write it? He was the first assistant director. Sorry. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, I yeah. saw Get the Gringo. Just, that was pretty good. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. I it just it just brings me a like an inkling of joy knowing that when like Stallone wanted to bring something up to the director, there were probably multiple occasions where he said, "Hey, yo, Adrian." So that's kind of funny. Right. Right. I'm, I'm sure. Oof, first day on set, yeah. he probably wore that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Immediately. Oh, and uh, also, because I, I was going to say this before, it was actually pretty recent that Stallone did say they're actually going to do a prequel for the movies, uh, regardless of the success of this one. Oh, and he's no. not going to. Yeah, I know. So he's not going to be like Rambo. Like some, they're going to find somebody to play a young Rambo in his like teen Honestly, years. I'd rather just see 70. If they're going to make a prequel, just put like 70 year old Stallone as like a <laughs> in 20. high school. <laughs> Right. Hey, guys. I just want you cool kids. (laughs) I heard you got drafted. Yeah. But yeah. um, Yeah, Maybe I'll sign up too. Yeah. So they're doing this. So so the sixth installment of both Rambo and Die Hard is going to be a prequel. It's going to be like White Loose, basically. Yeah. Yeah. The Die Hard prequel. McLean or whatever it's called. Oh, yeah. That's still happening? I I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming I haven't heard they canceled the, it, which we're all waiting for that. Yeah. Last I checked, it's still in the works. Len Wiseman was attached to direct uh, last year, like a week before uh, uh, Anthony and Jason and I talked about all the Die Hard movies. So that actually kind of worked out uh, nicely. Um, yeah, I hope they cast uh, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That would be kind of funny. Like, yeah, so oh, yeah. you get to be the young Bruce Willis now. <laughs> That's great. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. All right, all right, that's that's Rambo: Last Blood. We have a bunch of other films to get to. Uh, they won't be quite as long reviews yeah. as that, but I think that was well worth 
the uh, the overview because I yeah. feel like we've never really talked about the Rambo movies on this show before. Which, so great stuff. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the other big release of the weekend, Downton Abbey, which, Will, you saw, and we briefly talked about it last week, that you saw it and all that, and this yeah. is not a show that any of us have watched. I don't think you've ever seen Downton Abbey, Sam, correct? Never seen a single episode. Right, same here. I think. Same and yet that well. trailer gets me jacked like you wouldn't even believe. The theme <laughs> yeah, music really? is insane. Yes, I, it just gets me so excited because I work at a theater and it's and I work there in such a way that I have to sort of enter and exit the theaters intermittently. Um, and so I have heard and seen that trailer more times than I'd like to admit, and it never fails to give me goosebumps. I'm like, oh gosh, the king and queen are coming to Downton. What's going to happen? I just oh, get right. so excited, and I have no idea what's going on. But yeah. This is this is a random aside, but I also really enjoy the fact that one of the previous podcasts we worked on uh, was part-time characters, right? And the whole conceit of that was like, oh, we work in a video store. But in reality, <laughs> right now, all three of us have like theater experience or like worked in the theater in some capacity. So <laughs> mm-hmm. just oh, circle yeah. of life. Yeah. yeah. Nice. But yes, Downton Abbey. Will, you saw this without watching the show at all. And yeah, yeah. Uh, what did what, you think of Downton Abbey? I know you kind of talked about it last week, but just I did. in case... Well, well, did you didn't you say like kind of a general statement on it, or maybe that was off the air, and I'm just remembering that. I think I said off the air, but I oh, forget. Yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I won't go nearly as in depth as Sam did with Rambo, just because, like you said, um, I have no real familiarity with the show, just beyond like it got well claimed, and um, I knew like some of the actors are involved, like I think Lily Collins was on at one point, um. What's his name? The dude from the guest, Dan Stevens. No, uh, Lily, Lily James, <laughs> not Lily Collins. Sorry, Lily James. Sorry, not Lily Collins. Yes, Lily James. Um, but I know like they were involved at one point. I know um, Mr. Brown from Paddington and uh, uh, the great Maggie Smith was involved. Like I, I knew like the actors were there, but just never really. It wasn't really my thing. And I knew it was probably good, but it was just like I I didn't really have any interest in watching it. And I didn't even see the trailer for this movie. So right. I heard it I was kinda, like, like it was the kind of show you watched if you were like part of a couple. And at the time sure. in my life, I wasn't part of a couple. So I wasn't watching the show. I think that's what it came down to for me. Yeah. Huh. I mean, it just seems like it's like a very like proper and polished show. Like if you if you like this kind of thing, it's very much up your alley. If you don't, it's just not your thing. And for me, it never was my thing. So I uh, never got around to watching the show. And then the movie, I just kind of like, yeah, I have a screening for it. I'll check it out. And I'll say having uh, not seen the show. I was generally able to follow the film pretty well. I think it, it it's not it doesn't ease in it into this universe. Like if you haven't seen the show, but like it definitely helps if you know the characters and stuff because it's like they don't really go in depth with their relationship and how everyone knows each other. But um, as a film, it's solid. It's you know it's very very posh and polite. Uh, so much so that um, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, uh, without giving any anything away as far as the context of the scene. Um, one character is supposed to insult another person. Uh, one well-dressed person is like stripping down like another person verbally by saying, well, I hope you find yourself a really good book to read and read it to the end. <laughs> it just amused me that that was like an insult to somebody in this movie. It's like, huh. that's how polite and British this is. Like it's, it's very, um, it's extremely, you know, like, like proper and poised like that. And in that sense, like, it's fine. Like, it's very, I think if you like this kind of thing, you'll enjoy it because it's generally well done. Like, it's, you know, like the sets are gorgeous. The acting is solid. Um, 
but there's nothing in it that really stands out to me having not seen the show. Uh, it just seemed like a kind of like nice reprieval for people who like these characters uh, and enjoy it. Like, like there are stakes, but they, they also seem kind of muted. Like there's no real like sense of threat throughout the movie. So it's just like it, it's just like, kind of like a reunion more or less for everyone involved with the show to do. And I think for people who enjoy the show, they'll dig it. It's a nice little return. Um, you can definitely tell that like it's basically like a extended episode. They added a lot of subplots in to justify the film length. And uh, some of those subplots, the way they're incorporating the film is just kind of odd without getting into spoilers. But um, yeah, I mean, it's solid. Uh, I'll give it a good firm B minus just because like I thought it was decent for what it was. But, uh, you know, like I, I don't think anyone who hasn't seen the show is really going to get much out of it. If you have seen it, you'll probably like it. And in that sense, you know. Check it out if you like the show. Otherwise, uh, there are other things out there, I think. I'm, I'm actually surprised you like it as much as you do, because I saw the running time was 122 minutes, so over two hours. Holy so I was worried. Well, I was just worried. It's like, if you don't have any interest in this movie, it's like, are you going to be able to sit through it for that long? But it sounds like you kind of got sucked into it enough that the runtime apparently didn't bother you very much. Yeah, it's fine. It's, you know, it's enjoyable enough. And like I said, like they they give you enough hints where it's not like I had no idea what was going on or who right. these characters were. Like they, like they they give enough of a like without it being like too like tacky into it. Like they just like all right because like they know like some people aren't gonna watch the show. So it's like they kind of establish enough for like the 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 fresh viewers that they'll have an idea what's going on, but never to the point where it's like it doesn't feel intrusive for either people who haven't seen it that they're getting like hour or you know like hours of show like condensed into like five minutes or let people who watch a show or feel like they have to like, go through like a like refresher it's just kind of like just like little hints and stuff here and there just like hey you know just so you know this is this person this is who they are and y- you get the gist so i think it's fine in that regard nice. yeah so one of the funny things about this too is this is actually one of the biggest box office hits for like an adult drama like of the entire year like if you count <laughs> once upon a time in hollywood as like an adult drama which eh. well um, i mean this is like it, pg so right, it's right. like you know. well just and the fan base came out for it is the main thing it's like a yeah. the budget is like under 20 million dollars but this thing's already grossed over 60 million and it just came mm. out so it's it's a pretty big hit yeah. for a based on its budget which is and it's, it's crazy yeah. to see in a good way yeah i mean it's just kind of weird to me because i was like throughout the movie i was watching it was like i mean they have enough to give it like a cinematic uh, grandeur but it never really seemed like a thing that needed to be in theaters, which I found kind of odd. It was like, why is this in theaters? But if it's doing well, then I guess that justifies it. Yeah, sure. clearly, clearly it's, it is a kind of show that people gather around. You know, there are a lot of Downton Abbey fans in the United States, Canada, the UK. Yeah, I can see a lot of people lot coming of together. Audience. Yeah, I can see a lot of people being like, oh, hey, let's get together with our friends who also like the show and watch it together and have a viewing party. But at the theater, I, I totally see the logic behind that move. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> This is this is just a quick aside, but uh, at the I work at the Alamo Draft House Theater, and we have like the special specialty drink menu for this movie, and uh, one one of the mixed drinks is called Mister Carson's Nightcap, which I think is a brilliant name for a drink. But I keep wanting to call it Johnny Carson's Nightcap. Oh, uh, <laughs> what yes. what is in the nightcap? Do you remember? Oh, you don't want to know. A lot of mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's doubt Nabby. A uh, solid B minus from Will Ashen. All right, a few other films to get to. A uh, one that I want to bring up is Tigers Are Not Afraid. It was actually a film that came out a few years ago. It's like 2017. I saw this too. 
But yeah, so so we both saw this. It is a a foreign language film. It's a Mexican. This is how it's described: a Mexican horror mystery film, which I guess is yes. pretty accurate. It was directed by Isa Lopez, who I, I know her more as a literary person. She's she's written um, a lot of TV shows, but also I, she wrote like a, a pretty prominent novel. I'm forgetting the name of, but yeah, she's she's very well known in uh, Mexico. Kind of an interesting movie to bring up, especially in light of Rambo. But yeah, I, I, I'll I'll describe this yeah. one a little bit, and then Will and I can talk about it. And I again, this this premiered a few years ago. This premiered, I think, at Fantastic Fest uh, two years ago, and it's just now coming out on Shutter. So if you don't yeah. have Shutter, uh, that's the streaming mm-hmm. service kind of for horror fans. Yeah, and it's <laughs> also playing in select theaters still. So yeah, you can't see it in certain cities. In just. Just a few, though. It, it hasn't been a big box office draw or anything. I think its its box office is still in the hundreds of thousands. So it, it, not a lot of theaters, but really lean runtime. 83 minutes. It's a really quick watch. Mm-hmm. And I'll just come right out and say it. I really like this movie. I, th- I think it's pretty good. So Tigers Are Not Afraid is a movie about a group of kids who have been really traumatized by this gang called Huascas, who they kidnap and they do kind of human trafficking. So it's kind of interesting how it portrays kind of the same things that Sam was talking about in Rambo last blood, but from the perspective of people who actually live there and each of these kids has had some kind of like horror enacted upon them. Like the main character we follow is named Estrella, which is Spanish for star and it's played by Paolo Lora. And she is this kid who there's like a school shooting nearby or a shooting nearby a school. And she, something kind of supernatural happens as a result of that. And she tries to use these supernatural wishes, I guess we'll say, to kind of change her fate because this gang is after her. And she comes into contact with this other kid who leads this kind of street gang of kind of like lost boys who are obsessed with tigers. And they're a group that just kind of, they roam around the streets, they, they're, they're thieves, and they, they're just trying to survive. They're trying to navigate both the horrors of this gang warfare that's after them, but then also the horrors of Estrella's psyche. She clearly is like haunted by this supernatural force. It's very Babadook-ish in the sense that sometimes you're really wondering what's real, what's not real. And it's a movie that ultimately comes to a place I wasn't fully on board. It wasn't a movie that completely came together for me, but I was really enchanted by the entire thing. Like the entire way throughout this movie, I was really in love with the the elements of this filmmaking, the character work, uh, what these kids were involved in, what was going on in their lives. And I, I walked away from it being like, I got to recommend this to as many people as I can. Especially people who really liked Roma, for example, if maybe that was their introduction into a movie that takes place in Mexico that's a little bit more authentic to the experience of like living in a place where that's been ravaged by gangs and, and things like that. So it's very interesting from that context, and uh, I'm very curious. Will, what, what, did, what did you think of Tigers Are Not Afraid? Are, are we close to the same opinion on this one? Uh, somewhat, yeah, I'd say. I mean, I definitely came in, I think, with more expectations of the film because um, it's been on, like you said, it's, it premiered a couple of years ago. And ever since it's premiered, like I, at least two or three years ago, I constantly see people like, oh, I really wish I could put this in my top 10, but it's only been in festivals. And it just seemed like it was like getting delayed a lot for some reason. I never I still don't really understand why it took so long to come out. Um, but yeah, when it finally came out, like I heard all these great things. Also, um, Guillermo del Toro was a big fan of the film and he's been very vocal about championing it. And I think that 
is apparent because um, the film seems to be harking also in addition to the films you're talking about, similar to um, uh, like Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone seem to be pretty big influences for this film. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, like just certainly the way that they blend um, very much like deep reality with like fantastical supernatural elements. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you that I don't think it comes together quite as well as I was hoping it would. It, it does feel a little like I, I think the beginning of the film wasn't quite as uh, structurally sound as I was hoping it would be. But I would say like definitely by like the last like 20 or 30 minutes, like something just really hit me about the film. I think particularly the simplicity of it. And just how much it mirrors the reflection of the children and how, like, they're able to see, uh, you know, like, this reflections of um, themselves and, like, how, like, they honor, like, the memories of the people who've passed. And uh, just the, the themes of film, they, they I think they're almost, like, I, I think I was trying to read too much into it at first, the beginning. But then, like, once I understood, like, the film was just very straightforward about what it's saying, something about the simplicity of it, especially in the last few moments, really hit me. And so... I would definitely recommend it as well, especially if you have Shudder. I think it's uh, it's a very quick watch and I think it's affecting. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I'm quite as high on the film as you or some other people I've heard about coming in. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But yeah, like where, we, where we're going to land grade wise. But yeah, I fully agree that it's well worth a Shudder subscription considering you can watch this. You can also watch Mandy and Revenge and a lot of other great films that are on that service right now. Even if you can't commit to a full year of Shudder, uh, I recommend checking out one of these days if you ever want to have like a really good horror movie marathon. Although I was a little confused in parts of this movie because it's not really straight horror. There's horror stuff in it, but it's not. It's kind of like Florida Project for a lot of the scenes like you're really just hanging out with these kids and yeah it's like floor project meets it in some ways like kind of like kids dealing with supernatural entities and stuff yeah but like yeah with floor it's a project (laughs) sure sam (laughs) we'll let (laughs) that one slide but yeah you better yeah yeah i i still don't fully understand some of what Issa Lopez was going for. And that's, I think by design, I think she's, she's stuffing a lot of thematic elements in here that could go over your head specifically, specifically with what she's trying to say about uh, tigers and some of the historical context from that imagery. I think there's stuff going on here. That's very particular to people who know the culture better than Will and I do. Cause we didn't grow up there, Sure, but yeah, I, I think that stuff is there and it's, it's worth tapping into, but I would also say that, yeah, for for a film that swings this hard, yeah, okay, it's not a home run. It's it's not like a grand slam of a movie or anything. But I really respect the hell out of this movie for for yeah, trying so hard. And there's so much effort that was just put into like making, especially with these kids. Like these kids are just like Juan Ramon Lopez. I didn't mention who plays Shine is just like this hauntingly good actor who just really. You know, uh, there's a scene involving him and Palagora as Estrella that I just was like, I was gobsmacked. I was like, how old are these kids? And they're just like, they're they're killing it right now. And just this dramatic performance from them in a movie that ostensibly is horror. But again, it's kind of like a, a... it's kind of like musical chairs it's like every once in a while the music stops and the horror starts right and then you're like oh here we go and then it goes back to just being florida project again which i I didn't mind that but i think that plays into why the movie doesn't fully come together in the sense that it did make me care about the kids a lot but at the same time i was a little bit lost on ultimately what the the trajectory was for 
Estrella, whose name is just so on the nose. And uh, I'm, I'm very curious what, what other people are going to think about this movie, uh, especially. But uh, I, I'm actually, I think this is quality wise, this movie is a bit more, it's like B, kind of high B, but I want to give it a B plus because I really respect it. And I really think that uh, it's flaws. I can really overlook a lot of them. So I, I'm going to give it a B plus myself. And uh, what about you, Will? Yeah, I'm going to give it a firm B. Um, like you said, I think what really stands out here is really good. And I do think that the child performances um, at the center are really what makes this connect together um, in a way that I think even if, like you said, you don't fully connect with the movie as far as the structure is concerned, I think their performances ring true enough. And I think through them, you can really appreciate uh, how the film is able to view the lens of childhood and like these like dark uh, realities, but like, you know, how fantasies connect us to our realities and like how they're sort of, um, th- there's also something to be said. I don't know if the movie does this intentionally or not, but like how children are probably naturally like more connected to supernatural because like their, their younger age, like if they have like a more connection to the dead, I don't know if that was like intentional theme of the film or not, but, um, yeah, there's just something about that. There, like there's, these very poignant haunting scenes that really stand out to me. And I, I think they especially come out towards the end in a way that, um, affected me emotionally. So yeah, I give it a firm B. I'm really curious to see uh, what Isa Lopez, that's the name of the filmmaker, right? Yeah. Yeah, I really like to see what she does next. Um, I think she did like a comedy after this. And it's like seemed like a very broad comedy, which is like not what I expected her to do <laughs> after this movie. Um, but don't quote me on that because I'm not 100% sure. But um, yeah, I think it's a solid film and I definitely would recommend it. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> the thing I'll say about the the kids are such good actors in here. It's almost like a bad thing because the adults just don't like measure up in my opinion. Like they're not bad or anything, hmm. but like the kids are so good. I just kind of was like, eh, I don't really think, yeah. Like, I don't think the, like whenever the adults come on screen, which isn't too much, I was just kind of like, man, they're, they're not even close to being nearly as interesting, but yeah, that's, that's tigers are not but, afraid. I mean, that's kind of like the opposite of what we get from most movies though. <laughs> Like usually the adults right, like right. outshine the kids, and now we have a movie where the kids outshine the adults. So exactly, which is nice to see for sure. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's not like Florida Project where it's kind of more in sync. Where like that that was like a, a really good balance between yeah. the kids and the adults being such great actors. Uh, and and yeah, I don't really know much about um, Isa Lopez's follow up to Tigers Are Not Afraid. It's a film that came out last year. Yeah, I don't know if it's a comedy, but uh, definitely not one. It looks that like a is comedy, on my radar, I'm not sure. So. I mean, just looking at like like the poster of it looks like a lot like like a broad comedy kind of thing. So just like I don't know, like, I haven't seen any footage from it, so I don't know like what the content of the film is. But just design wise, it looked very much like it was appealing to a different audience than Tigers Are Not Afraid. All right, that's Tigers Are Not Afraid. Um, solid B plus for me and a B from Will Ashen. Sam Noland, you saw kind of yes. in a similar vein. You saw a horror film that uh, I I think is this one on Shutter as well. One Cut of the Dead. Um, it's I, I, coming out on Shutter this week. Okay, thank you. And I, I really, I've been hearing good things about this one. This is a a Japanese film. It's also, I believe, a zombie comedy. What's going on with this movie, Sam Nolan? Please explain everything. There's a whole lot going on with this movie, and it actually has uh, some interesting parallels with Tigers Are Not Afraid. Not in content by any means. They're radically different, at least from what I can tell. Um, but sort of in context. Uh, they were both released in 2017 um, in the festival circuit and are just now uh, finally making their way over here. Uh, One Cut of the Dead was released in Japan in 2017. Um, 
and it uh, had a budget of 25 million yen, if memory serves, or no, uh, 3 million yen, uh, which is equivalent to roughly 25,000 U.S. dollars. Um, and just did gangbusters at the box office to the point where it like it made its budget back by a factor of like a thousand. Uh, so it became the most successful indie in the history of Japan um, and has been making its way through the festivals over 2018 and is now receiving what I think might be a limited release here in the States. I actually don't know. Um, the reason I got to see it is because uh, bringing it up again, uh, the Alamo Drafthouse where I work. Uh, they, uh, they've been playing this movie for, for, uh, for the past couple of weeks, um, as, uh, cause it's part of the Fantastic Fest selection, which is, uh, run by Alamo Drafthouse, if you didn't know. And, uh, it's, it's been getting, it's been playing just in one theater. I have no idea if it's playing anywhere else. I wasn't able to, to figure out that information. Uh, so for all I know, it's literally just the one theater here in, here in Colorado that's playing it. Um, but regardless, I got to see it, uh, last night with my brother, producer Den, who some of you might know from the show. And, uh, to describe this movie would sort of be, uh, or to describe it in its entirety, at least, would sort of be, ruining the fun of it but this is what i'll say this is what i'll say first and then i'll get into a little bit more context um just to tease a little bit um uh ad astra is i loved it and it's certainly one of my favorite movies of the year and one cut of the dead might be the best movie that i'm reviewing this weekend it is fantastic it is to to the extent that completely blew me away um, not, not simply because it was that good, but because of the way it ends up being good com- is unlike any other movie I've ever seen. This is unbridled creativity of the kind that I cannot, I cannot even remember, uh, the last time I experienced something like this. Uh, so to, to sort of describe how the movie starts, um, there, there's a sort of this, dilapidated uh old house somewhere in japan where this uh film crew has gone to film what looks to be a pretty low budget kind of b zombie movie uh with this really frustrating director who wants like 42 takes even though it's just kind of what looks to be kind of like a campy uh schlocky zombie kind of grindhouse movie um but what happens is that through this weird contrivance involving some sort of ceremony with blood, uh, it turns out there's actually a zombie breakout that happens to be infecting this very film set on this very day. Uh, and it, and it's, and it's revealed in a very fun way. Cause, um, what happens is they're like, all right, we're going to, let's take 30. We got to figure some stuff out. The makeup artist takes the two lead actors aside and, uh, and says, well, you, you heard about this house, right? And they're like, oh no, are we in a zombie movie? Yep. You're in a zombie movie. It's haunted. And it turns out that these zombies have just started randomly popping up. And it's, it's a very Romero-esque, uh, just, just a straightforward kind of zombie movie where, where the, the lack of showiness is sort of, what makes it not necessarily scary, but at least effective. It's, uh, I can totally buy it as this like cheesy sort of, sort of B movie, like, oh, hey, they're making a zombie movie and then they get attacked by real zombies. What do you know? And, uh, 
it goes on and I start re- like 10 minutes in. I'm like, oh, this is this is all in one take. And it keeps going. And at the 20 minute mark, I'm like, my goodness, this is still in one take. And at like the 35 minute mark, I'm like, is this just going to be 96 straight minutes of this cheesy zombie movie? And then something happens and it becomes this delightful, smart, incredibly just hilarious and relatable story uh just that will just that will just bring you so much joy particularly uh if you've ever if you've ever familiarized yourself with sort of the filmmaking process in a very film school way like not big hollywood stuff but just here's what it takes to make an indie here's what it takes to sort of uh support yourself and tell the story you want to tell regardless of if anyone else needs to hear it just do you and put out the art into the world that you would want to see yourself. And it is inspiring and it is fantastic and just downright clever, you know, in a way that I didn't know I needed. And it is one of the best movies of the year. So whatever you have to do, uh, seek this out and don't like don't ruin it for yourself don't read uh the description it is or i don't know i actually don't know if the description gives away what happens um but just whatever you have to do go in as blind as you as you possibly can uh it's it's fantastic that's i i can't i'm amazed at how good this movie was and i hope that uh everyone else is as well is this is this an a movie for sam noland it's an A movie, yeah. Wow, it's, that's it's fantastic. It's a solid A. I did. Yes. I did not think we would have an A film review on this episode because I was looking at the list I and I was like, oh, I'm seeing some Bs. I'm seeing some B pluses, maybe, but an A. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, this film has been my radar for a few weeks now because, well, a longer, a little longer than a few weeks. I know friend of the show Matt Donato has been seeing its praises. He's a big fan of this film. And it's actually playing in one theater in the Bay Area. Funny enough, it's playing in Oakland, California. And it's like at the second run theater, like where tickets are cheaper. Yeah, it's, it's funny how that works out. One of the cool things about the Bay Area, of course, is that we get a lot of really cool foreign language films because we're, we have such a diverse population here. Like we get really great Bollywood films. We get a lot of great Chinese films. Japanese films are still kind of growing in our area. And so it's great to see this one. I've heard that Shinshiro Ureda butchering that pronunciation, I'm sure. Uh, I've heard he's one of, this is one of the best debuts from a director since like Jordan Peele with Get Out. Like people are, are definitely looking at him as a kind of a revelation as a new director. And I, I'm excited to see this. I, I will probably not be able to see this in theaters, unfortunately. I think it came to the Draft House in San Francisco and kind of, I probably already left that theater as far as I know. But I believe you said it's coming to Shutter this week. Will Ashen? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say, too, um, I've been this movie's been on my radar since January, I believe, because I think it was on Prime for a little bit. And then um, I also uh, it was at our theater, um, but it was only playing in the evening, so I couldn't see it because it was usually when I was cleaning up. But, yeah, it's been it's been out there for a little bit and I'm glad it's getting a bigger re- release. But, yeah, it's going to be on Shutter this Tuesday, I'm told. Yeah, that's that's great to hear well. because, yeah, very successful. One of the most successful films. Um, I, I think it because like you mentioned, I think three million yen, it's like about the same budget as Peanut Butter Falcon. Right. Because that was like 20,000. So this yeah. is like slightly <laughs> more than that. Like at like. Tw- well, actually, um, 
I found that that budget was actually false. Oh, uh, was so, it? Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was misreported. I, I apologize. Uh, but yeah, that was um, I th- that was what it said for a while. But then I think the director came out uh, and said that wasn't actually the budget. Well, so. glad glad we could correct it here. Then <laughs> that's good. But yeah, so yeah, Shinshiro Ayura's One Cut of the Dead definitely sounds like a film worth seeking out. It's a high stamp approval from Sam Noland. All right. Zombie movies aside, we have just two films left. Will Ashton, you saw Between Two Ferns, the movie. This is a film that you put in. This is one of your uh, your fall movie preview anticipated films, I believe. And tell, yeah. remind the listeners, like, what is Between Two Ferns? It's been around for a while. Some people might, might not be fully aware. Maybe they've heard of it. Maybe they don't know exactly what it is. Uh, can you can you give us the rundown on this one? Yeah. Um, well, Between Two Ferns is Zach Galifianakis' like facts uh, celebrity talk show that he's done on Adult or no, not Adult Swim, Funny or Die uh, dot com for uh, I want to say about eleven years now because I think it first came on my radar because I know the first episode was with Michael Sarah, but I think I first saw the Natalie Portman one, which still remains one of my favorites. Um, well, do yeah. You know, like the, do you know the story of like how the show came about? Uh, I don't know. Maybe so, you, why don't you tell me? So this was Zach Galifianakis wasn't even like very famous, I believe. He right, yeah, this was before show, the Hangover. Right, so this was he. This was a public access TV show, and okay. Will Ferrell actually discovered it and uploaded it to Funny or Die, and then Galifianakis basically he was one of the. This was one of the first times somebody went viral because this was like the mid two thousands or something, and they just kept it going all this time as a web series. Yeah, I mean, it was directed. I mean, every episode's also been directed by Scott Ackerman, who people probably know best for his podcast. He is the host of Comedy Bang Bang, uh, uh, Mr. Show. show, and yeah, yeah. Well, he yeah, he was at Mr. Show as well, um, but not. I think he was just a writer on that, an actor. He had, he wasn't like a creative capacity, but he's also done like a lot of um, like ghostwriting stuff, and like he has a funny story about how he was involved with Looney Tunes back in action. Um, but yeah, so it's a film that. I didn't think was ever going to really come about um, just because I really enjoy the web series. Like um, I, I've just always got a kick out of them. I always share them whenever they get online. Um, I, I think I've enjoyed the earlier ones more because they had more of the, like you said, like the public access look to them. And uh, it was like around the same time Tim and Eric was kind of coming into pass. Like that kind of public access comedy was still pretty fresh. And I think it hit the market just the right time for that style of comedy to really flourish. And um, yeah, I've been following the series for a while. And it's been kind of quiet for like the past couple years. And it was just like, I guess, you know, because he's he does baskets or that just ended recently. But he's been doing baskets and a couple other things. So it's just like I thought. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the last time I remember between two ferns kind of like reaching the zeitgeist was when he asked Hillary Clinton uh, the best way to contact her. And he was like, oh, email or. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty funny stuff. Right. I believe that was the last one. So I was like, I I figured like, you know, maybe it's kind of done. You know, he, he, he's kind of probably done everything he wanted to do with the show. And also because it got so popular, like, I, I feel like that kind of defeated the point in some ways. Like, I know, like, it's always been like, like, they're not actually trying to be mean to celebrities, but I think they're a lot better in the earlier ones about, like, making it seem like it could be kind of real. And the awkwardness seems a lot more genuine than it did in, like, the um, Hillary Clinton one, the other ones where it's like everyone's in on the joke. Um, but with the movie, yeah, like, so, like recently about a year ago they just announced like hey we're gonna do a between two ferns movie it's gonna be on netflix and i was like you know like i as much as i dismiss the netflix formula as far as like kind of robbing a lot of movies from getting their theatrical release like i didn't get to see uh 
Ballad Buster Scruggs in theaters because that didn't really get a big theatrical release a couple others. But I think this movie was like when I heard about it, I was like, this is exactly what Netflix should be doing. Like, it's a kind of movie that, you know, it's like based on a web series. It's like uh, not something that really should be a movie. But at the same time, if it is going to be a movie, it's like low stakes. Like you just watch it at home and you can kind of, you know, judge it as you may. And um, I think that's basically what it got out of the film. Like it's a it's one of those um, like facts documentaries, like mockumentary styles where it's like like talking about a lot of stuff you're talking about where it's like a character of Will Ferrell who like is obviously a lot more exaggerated in this film. Like he's like cocaine addicted and like kind of zany. Uh, he he uh, found Zach Galifianakis. He kind of cradles this uh, web series that he does with this public ac- public access channel. And um, he just keeps doing these interviews that get popular because they're kind of awkward and uncomfortable. And uh, he has one with Matthew McConaughey, which goes bad in uh, more so than the other ones where like there's like this like water break and uh, he's worried about the sound getting out. So he like super glues the door. So it's like he almost kills Matthew McConaughey during the interview. And uh, there's this kind of convoluted plot where it's like in order to redeem himself, uh, Will Ferrell says that Zach Galifianakis and his camera crew have to kind of go around the country interviewing different celebrities and get to him two weeks later. And if he does so, he'll get a network talk show. And the plot is just basically kind of like another mockumentary kind of thing with like scattered interviews throughout. And as you expect, the interview segments are the better points of the movie, just because I think they're a lot sharper comedy wise. Um, They're just like what you expect from between two ferns. And um, I I think the formula where they kind of like only show snippets of the interviews kind of robs the comedy that was so good and the uh web series because like it would just play out for so long that like the uncomfortableness kind of builds in a way that makes it really funny and like having it just be shorter clips throughout the film just kind of feels like um it just doesn't feel like it's quite as effective but um there's like enough funny stuff in here that i think it really works like there's a a joke uh involving the movie tag uh with john ham that i think is a lot funnier <laughs> than uh, anything in Tag, which is nothing because huh. that movie was terrible. Um, but Agreed yeah, to there's continue like continue disagreeing. Yeah, um, I'll give away like like I don't know. I always find like the like little like sub tags <laughs> under the actors to be like some of the best jokes. Like like when um, Brie Larson comes out, he's like he puts the marvelous Mrs. Maisel <laughs> for what she's known for. Um, do you get what that's from? Like instead of Captain yes, Marvel, yes. the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah, we we okay. get it, Will oh. Ash. <laughs> All right. Anyway, that's a joke. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> um, if you like it, you can check it out on Netflix. You probably have already if you want to see it. It's eighty-two or yeah, it's eighty-two minutes, so same length as uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid. Um, and uh, I think it's pretty low stakes. Like I think if you if you like the show, you'll probably get enough laughs out of it that you feel like it's better than it could have been. But it's also not like as good as the actual web series that I don't think it fully justifies having a movie of it, but it was fun to see uh, Scott Ackerman's directorial debut. And it was nice as like a fan of the series to see it go this far in a way that I never really anticipated it would. So yeah, I give it a solid B minus. I was playing a B and a B minus, but I just think the movie itself is just kind of shabby. It doesn't, it feels very patchy in the way it's put together. And so I don't think it's, I don't think it's quite bead level, but I got enough laughs out of it that I definitely think it's uh, worth a stream watch if you have the chance to check it out. So, yeah, that's my review of Between Two Ferns. All right. Uh, Between Two Ferns, the movie, 
I definitely want to watch this. Uh, it, it just seems like a nice yeah. like background Netflix watch. I'll probably watch it while I'm like cooking something or, you know, just doing something that yeah. I can and laugh and have a good time. So I, glad to hear yeah, it's good. I will say, yeah, I will say I do really wish that the movie was just an extended like episode of the, the, the show. That's what like, I thought like, it would be. Yeah. That's why I was hoping it would be. I'm kind of hoping if they were making an Eric Andre show movie, that's what it's going to be. Just like a descent into madness. Where like it's just like a recurring amount of guests and just like yeah, just I, I hope that's what I was hoping that was what the movie would be, but it's actually kind of a more conventional narrative, which I can kind of take or leave, but like I said, there's no funny stuff in here that I'd recommend it. All right. Well, that'll do it for Between Two Ferns. We have just one last mini review, if you want to call them mini reviews. Some of them have been just straight up <laughs> reviews, which is good. Uh, we have yeah, one last one to talk about here. Hey, this is a new British horror comedy film. It's called In Fabric. This is a film that I've been wanting to see. It's directed by Peter Strickland. I know Gwendolyn Christie from like Game of Thrones and Star Wars is in this. This premiered last year at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. And a lot of us have been waiting, well, when are we going to see it? Um, it's, I know it's been, refer- it's been compared to uh, Phantom Thread. And it's finally going to be coming out this December by A24. That's why it wasn't part of our fall movie preview. But Sam Nolan, you have gotten a chance to watch this one a little bit early. This is BBC Films uh, as one of the production companies. So I think it's gotten some kind of release in other countries besides the United States. I think it came out in the UK actually this past summer. So been around for a while. What did you think of In Fabric? And also, of course, what is it about? What is this movie? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, a lot of a lot of questions to answer. First off, this will be a mini review, so fear not. Uh, but yes, you are correct. This did come out in June uh, this past year in the United Kingdom. So it is a uh, film from the UK. So I'm glad they got it before we did because they deserve it. Uh, and uh, it does come out, uh, according to IMDb, it comes out on December 6th of this year. So uh, keep an eye out for this one because this is a really fun little pot boiler of a horror movie. So basically what it's about is that um, uh, there's a, a woman played by uh, Marion Jean-Baptiste uh, who, if you know her from anything, it is most likely without uh, a trace. <laughs> yeah. Without a trace. No, I was going to say either without a trace. Uh, yeah. She was a uh, Vivian Johnson on that show or uh, from Mike Lee's secrets and lies, which is Ooh, 23 90. years ago, but it's a good nineties film. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I actually haven't seen it. So but I forgot I'm very, she was in I, that. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I've I've heard so many good things and I really want to see it. I just Mike Lee in general I really have to catch up on. But uh that's that's a different conversation. Uh this movie uh uh she plays a woman named Sheila who uh works at uh some sort of behind the desk job. I don't think she's a bank teller, but it's sort of that same deal where she's behind uh a desk with like a pane of soundproof glass or something and is just doing customer service day in and day out. Uh, she seems to have sort of, you know, lost, uh, lost the enthusiasm, uh, not to, you know, continue living or anything, but her life has just sort of become humdrum, uh, you know, monotonous stuff. Every day is kind of the same thing. Uh, her son played by, uh, let me make sure I get this name right. Played by, uh, Barry Adamson, uh, is, uh, her son, Zach is kind of a, not really doing much with his life. And his girlfriend is played by Gwendolyn Christie, who is sort of like this, you know, in air quote, uh, manic sort of, sort of, uh, art, artistically inclined, uh, sort of weird girl, you know? 
Um, and what happens is that Sheila decides, you know what, I'm going to, I'm, uh, I'm divorced, recently divorced, as a matter of fact. Uh, so I'm going to sort of try to get myself back in the dating game. And, uh, uh, she takes an ad out in the paper. It all has a very old school feeling. Uh, I get the sense it takes place in like maybe the, maybe the sixties or, uh, maybe early seventies, somewhere around that time. Uh, and, uh, is set up to go on a date. She goes to a very strange, very alluring and mysterious clothing store um that i can't remember the name of but it's like two names like you know uh some something and something uh i can't remember the exact names but regardless she goes to the store is confronted by uh one of my favorite side characters of the entire year is uh miss luckmore played by an actress named fatma muhammad who i i cannot who i haven't seen in like any other movie and i'm and she's kind of the breakout star of this movie. She's kind of like the, she has this like Tilda Swinton persona of like anything could happen and it does, but you totally buy it. I think she was in a uh, Duke of Burgundy, right? Yeah. I think I'm not positive, but yeah, same director, uh, that too. would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense. So it's the same director. But regardless, uh, very mysterious sort of uh, arbiter of clothing. She says, here, try on this lovely red dress. And lo and behold, we find out very quickly uh, that it's a killer dress. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, because because what it's, else it was it made in the 50s by Daniel Day-Lewis. And uh, it contains ah. the ghost of his dead mother. Ha! You well, know, I, I heard, just remembered. Yeah, I was going to say, I have heard, uh, you, it's funny you mentioned it, because I have heard that this movie is basically like the movie you imagine Phantom Thread to be based on the title alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I just remembered, I never put this together until right this moment. There is like words etched into the, into the dress, like hidden about in the that. seams. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, how did, I don't know how I didn't make that connection. So yeah. There's uh, more to very... fashion than it seems. Ah. Ooh, yes, yes, there is more to it, darling. There is more. Uh, There's no uh, capes. No capes, no capes whatsoever. But it is a very nice red dress, and it it just slowly starts causing just pain and misery uh and in a way that's just really sort of devilishly fun to watch it just this has this great uh giallo feeling like like an old uh you know dario argento movie or something um and i think you're you're gonna want to see this movie in a crowd because the way it starts it it slowly reveals itself as a comedy and hearing just myself as well as everyone else in the theater just slowly realize how ludicrous and funny and sort of darkly uh amusing this is 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 something that can't be replicated and there's also and this could have just been with the very specific theater that i saw it in um which if you're curious for whatever reason was a uh, the lyric in fort collins a very nice little indie theater uh maybe it was just something about the sound system but it plays with sound at a couple of instances that really got me because i thought they were just part of the ambient noise in the theater and then i slowly realized like oh no that's a washing machine spinning out of control because the dress is destroying it from the inside like that is literally a scene that happens in this movie and then what other scene with a dog that just kind of that the sound design plays out in an unexpected way um 
it's uh it's really fun to watch i think uh it could have been cut down by a good 20 minutes it's it's uh 118 minutes so it's skirting up against the two hour mark i don't think it really had to be that long um it's it goes places from where i described but there's no no need to uh to elaborate on that it's it's it sort of goes apace um in a way that maybe you could predict and maybe you couldn't but it's it's fun to watch throughout and uh and it also has this really interesting underlying current um it doesn't get explored too much but i think it is there of how uh clothing allows us to take on meaning and how it can sort of it can very simply through through just a you know a change of pattern or color or something can completely change the way that the world sees us or uh, in the inverse of that how we see the world um it's not really explored in depth but it's not trying to i think it's just trying to be a really uh just fun exciting really just just uh, unusually made uh horror comedy and i think it, there, i haven't seen a movie like this in a long time uh so and i think it should not be it should not be passed up so keep an eye out for in fabric i'm gonna give it a solid b i have nothing no huge complaints or anything um but yeah it's uh definitely definitely uh uh keep an eye out for this one Sam, do you think this one has best costume design at the Academy Awards up its sleeve? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, it's the, There's not really a whole lot of costumes, but there's a good number, so I can see it getting that. Uh, there's a... I don't, to be perfectly honest, I don't really keep an eye on that sort of stuff, but I do, uh, there is a lot in here to notice, so I could see that happening, and that would be cool. It would give this movie whatever whatever attention it can give, because I don't know if they're planning a big marketing campaign or anything. I mean, it's A24, so uh, there. I know that uh, a lot of people will be excited to see anything from them, so uh it's got at least at least a handful of viewers but yeah i hope this uh i hope this does really well because i want to see more movies like this this is really a uh we we don't get this kind of movie anymore and i think uh it would be i would not reject more like this certainly yeah so you saw yeah, this um, at least not oh, sorry go ahead i was just gonna add to what he said at least not in theaters we get this kind of film very often yeah i was gonna say yeah fair. uh sam so you saw this for our house cinema day on wednesday right Yes, September 18th. I found out as I was walking into the theater, oh, it's Art House Cinema Day. I thought they were just showing it randomly, like yeah. it was, you know, some sort of special event or something. But no, they were, they actually played this in a couple theaters near me. So, mm-hmm. uh, and it got a pretty, pretty decent sized crowd for a relatively small uh, auditorium it was in. So I hope that only carries over into the wide release. Yeah, because I was going to say, um, I also had a chance to see it on Wednesday. However, um, I had to choose between this and the other theater where I work was playing Putney Swope. Uh, the hmm. 50th anniversary, the Robert Senior movie, or Robert Downey Senior movie. Um, so I picked Putney Swope because I I felt like I was hoping that there would be a point later in December where I could see In Fabric in theaters, and this felt like the only time I could see Putney Swope in theaters. But I'm really excited to hear what you're saying about the film. Yeah, seems like a good that seemed like a good choice because yeah, you'll you'll probably be able to catch this in December. A24 they're usually pretty good about distributing it out to a lot of different metros. So we'll see. That is that is in fabric. Critics like this one too. I saw it has a ninety six percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I should say other critics, but yeah. Um, so pretty good score. And I I don't know what the budget for this is, but I could tell from what I've seen, like it seems pretty relatively low budget. So the stakes aren't super high for this to be a big hit. 
Yeah, I'm not seeing the budget anywhere, but it doesn't. There's nothing huge in it. There's a few like special, uh, a few special effects, uh, mostly practical, which I like. A lot of a lot of really fun, gory stuff, and a lot of blood, and and a, a building bursts into flames at the end. Uh, and uh, and for and for goodness' sake, please cast uh, Fatma Muhammad in more movies. Uh, I I I certainly hope I'm not uh, crediting the wrong actress, but yeah, uh, she was fantastic. The clothing store owner is who you want to look out for. Sounds good to me. I mean, it seems like this movie so it premiered last year, right, at the festivals. Yeah, yeah it seems like A24 is actually taking the approach of like using like the film festival circuit and the art house circuit to kind of like build up buzz for it. Because they know it seems like it's going to be kind of weird and out there. And I think they're trying to like build the word of mouth that way. So I'm glad you had a chance to see it and kind of hype it up through here. And hopefully that'll draw some people to see it come December. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Check this one out. All right. That'll that'll do it for our mini reviews then. Uh, <laughs> go check out In Fabric if you can. Um, coming up soon. But our last review is, is here. Because... I, I did watch a bunch of stuff this week, but mainly catching up on some TV shows that I've been meaning to re- to finish up. Like I was really behind on, for example, Superstore and I'm um, just now catching up on Shameless Season 9. And there is one new show that I, I started watching, but I'm still embargoed on it. It's Modern Love, which is a new show coming out on Amazon Prime. It's an anthology series. Uh, some of the episodes were written and directed by John Carney, who you will, of course, know from like Sing Street, Begin Again, Once. And he's a director I, I really love. So uh, that was the main reason I wanted to, to check out those screeners. But we, we won't be able to talk about Modern Love for a few more weeks. Until we do, I did watch the first, uh, almost all of the episodes that are that were available to me. I don't know how many there will be total. It's like, there's like seven or eight. But uh, I definitely am excited to talk about that show. I think that'll probably be a good discussion. Considering the talent involved, you haven't heard of it. Like, for example, John Slattery and Tina Fey. Uh, are in one episode. Dev Patel and Catherine Keener are in the second episode. Um, so just incredible cast. Like if you if you actually look at some of these these episodes and like who's in it, it it's pretty impressive stuff. Um, oh, one of them has Sophia Batella and David Gallagher. So <laughs> David Gallagher Jr. I think he has a junior in his name. But we'll talk about Modern Love in a few weeks. For now, let's get to our featured review for this week at Astra. At Astra is a new sci-fi adventure film. That was directed and co-written by James Gray. The last film we talked about from that director was The Lost City of Z, or Lost City of Z, depending on your country, and which was a film, uh, so that started with uh, Charlie Hunnam and Tom Holland and it, I think Santa Miller. And, and that was a movie that was about a guy who goes and in, who goes into the unknown and eventually his son is kind of chasing after him and his relentless quest to explore the deepest reaches of civilization and whether or not <laughs> there is sanity beyond uh, the known corners of our map and at Astra is exactly the same movie <laughs> but in space yeah. uh, so we kind of alluded space. this earlier but this actually premiered at the Venice Film Festival uh, right at the tail end of August, it was supposed to be a summer film, but they kind of retweaked it because, as some of you know, this is a Fox Searchlight film. And since Disney acquired Fox, a lot of Fox films have been kind of tossed around and reshuffled. Uh, one of them we talked about very recently, for example, was Ready or Not, which I think was kind of just – they just let that kind of come out, I think, when we knew it would come out. But this one was delayed a few months and was kind of relegated to the fall film circuit and this is a film that we should say at the outset 
uh, there's a lot of Oscar attention for this film. There's a lot of critical love for this film. A lot of people are calling this a masterpiece. A lot of people are looking at this as one of the best films of the year. It's a high-budget film. Uh, some estimates have it costing up to $100 million. It's also a long film. It's over two hours at 124 minutes. So far, it's, I, I want to get all of the details up front. So box office-wise, it's already made about half of its reported budget, which is not bad. Uh, you know, it would probably be a bigger hit if its budget had been kind of lower, more like a rival, like that kind of feeling. And it stars <laughs> Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones and Ruth Nega and Liv Tyler and Donald Sutherland and a bunch of other people you'll recognize and be like, oh, they're in the movie. That's that's great. Oh, Natasha Leone, she's in this movie. I wonder what she's going to do. But <laughs> a lot of this film has them maybe like, uh, I think Natasha Leone has about 30 seconds of scream time. <laughs> Um, and you could kind of go down the list of people who just kind of show up and leave, uh, Liv Tyler, I think only has one line of dialogue and it's through like a recording. Um, yeah, very, very strange, but I, that's all to say that this film, this centers very squarely on Brad Pitt. I think this is a film that rests squarely on his performance and the plot as it is, is it's very simple. Uh, this is in the near future when we've sort of figured out space travel, we, we've sort of figured out, okay, we have this uh, kind of airport-like moon base with uh, yeah. sp space pirates, of course. Uh, <laughs> they they built an amusement park on the moon, which is exactly what happens in the second episode of Futurama. Right. So I, certainly I was thinking of Futurama too. <laughs> but it's not really an amusement It really is more like an airport because it's like, they literally have like a Hudson News, a mm -hmm. Subway sandwiches, and like a couple <laughs> of like, little tiny attractions where you can take pictures with like aliens like alien yeah. did you spot the ups. did you spot the applebees in the landing strip? i did <laughs> I just... <laughs> and that's that's probably the most ambitious thing about this movie it's like applebees will totally exist in like 50 yeah. or 100 years yeah oh, i just yes i just always love when sci-fi movies make everything seem very like banal or like kind of like perfunctory in that way like there's like stuff on the moon. It's just like, yeah, I'm just like going like it's like, just like any other any other yeah. airport to them it's just like yeah i'm on the moon i could go to the applebees right. or subway <laughs> A commercial airline right. to the moon is like treated as just very like a natural extension of what we'd see. I, I want to say too, like the outset, this is a film with uh, pretty incredible world building or space building, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it. Universe where <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of universe building. There's a lot of attention put into the just what this world feels like, the rules of it, how things work, and. That that is to say, it, it has to be because it is kind of an odyssey for Brad Pitt's character. He mm. is basically Neil Armstrong's reincarnation, um, in the sense where I, I tweeted this earlier today. James Gray basically was like, "What if a, what if the, my main protagonist's superpower is just being really chill, like as he's falling and hurtling from an antenna in space and like parachutes down to Earth, his his resting pulse or his pulse or whatever." doesn't go above like 80, whatever. I don't know the terms, but like it, it, yeah. it's all to say that he's just like obnoxiously, superhumanly calm all the time. That mm. is of course, until he has to go find uh, the remnants of a machine that's up by Neptune that uh, is creating these surges that is ruining and killing people. And it might somehow involve his possibly dead father played by Tommy Lee Jones who disappeared in space a long time ago and has been presumed dead for many years. And in order to contact him, Brad Astra has to go on this, <laughs> this journey to Mars. He has to stop in different places. And then he has to 
uh, Mars is like the only place where they can get into communication out there. And along the way, you sort yeah. of get a sense of how this universe operates and how the space mm -hmm. travel operates and all that good stuff. Major, what can you tell us about the Lima project? First manned expedition to the outer solar system, sir. Some 29 years ago. And the commander was? He was my father, sir. The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission. And no data was ever recovered. Deep space missions were halted after that. Roy, we have something that might come as quite a shock to you. We believe your father is still alive near Neptune. My father's alive, sir? We believe so. Roy, the surge seems to be the result of some kind of antimatter reaction. Now, the Lima project was powered by that material, and your father was in charge of it. Now, we're talking about a potentially unstoppable chain reaction here. And the uncontrolled release of antimatter could ultimately threaten the stability of our entire solar system. All life could be destroyed. Major, we would like you to send a personal message on Mars by secure laser to what we hope is the Lima project. What is happening out there is a crisis of unknown magnitude. Now we're counting on you to help us find him. Are you with us? Yes, I am, sir. I don't want to give too much away in terms of like how this all works and everything, but for the most part, it is a film that is very on its own. It's a standalone film, but it borrows a lot from other films. It's got, you got a little bit of 2001 A Space Odyssey over here. You've got a pretty heavy dose of Apocalypse Now in terms of the structure. Yes! How I thought I was the only one. Oh, definitely. <laughs> as soon as the voiceover in this movie starts, I was like, okay, this yeah. is like 20% Blade Runner, 80% Apocalypse Now. And the fact that he, like, can't tell anyone his destination, like, mm -hmm. all right, I'll take you as far right. as I will, but I'm going to find out where you're going, dang it. <laughs> it right, it'd right. be like Apocalypse Now if Martin Sheen was Marlon Brando's son, which would, <laughs> which would make the movie way different than it already is. And we also have to bring up Solaris. Uh, there's a lot of that uh, inspiration drawn here. Not that that's a bad thing. There's a lot of just inspiration drawn for this movie. Solaris and, yeah. and then also Space Cowboys, just in the casting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of uncanny. <laughs> but I'll, I'll say for now, Ad Astra, I, I don't think this is a masterpiece. I, I think if this movie had come out in the early 2000s, we would think very differently of it. But as it happens, this movie doesn't quite hit that spot for me. I, I like it. I really don't love it. I, I There's a lot in here that I just, and I lay it at the feet of Brad Pitt. I, I just don't think he's very good in this. And I mm. don't think the story between him and his father is as interesting in execution as it probably was in the script, which James Gay, James Gray co-wrote with uh, Ethan Gross. So I want to hear from you though, starting with you, Sam Noland. What what did what did you think of Dad Astra? I, I mean Brad Astra. I, I mean Ad Astra. Sorry, Sad Astra. <laughs> uh, I loved it. <laughs> I I totally loved it to pieces. I loved it as much as I thought I would, um, which I already sort of alluded to. I think I I certainly have problems with it, and almost all of which having to do with, uh, as you alluded to, sort of. Uh, the way a lot of the cast sort of gets shortchanged, I don't sense a lot of like maliciousness. Um, 
I think uh, it, it's it's reminding me, uh, weirdly enough, of the conversation we had, uh, you and I, John, in person about Godzilla, uh, King of the Monsters, where you were saying a lot of the cast members in that just sort of get like one line and that's it, which is weird, especially considering like how big of a name they are. For whatever reason, that that uh, didn't bother me with either movie, honestly. Um, it's just I think if they they managed to get him for this this bit part. Why not? Uh, if they're game for it, but I can see how it would be frustrating to think that they're going somewhere with this character, but then ultimately not. Um, but yeah, before I just, uh, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to take anything away. So, uh, before I just get into it, cause I have a lot to say, uh, yeah. Will, what about you? What did you think of? <laughs> yeah. Ad yeah. Will Ashton. Will, Will, Will Astra. Are you going to side with Sam? Are you going to side with me? Are you going to side with yourself? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I'm definitely more on Sam's side with this one. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I actually, for some reason, because um, I really like Two Lovers, uh, his 2008 film with Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. For some reason, I haven't had a chance to see The Immigrant or La City of Z, uh, which is completely my fault. Like, it's two films I really want to see. I just haven't got around to them. So this is like, I mean, going from Two Lovers to, <laughs> to Ad Astra was like a huge, like, shift to me in like terms of style and scope and tone but um yeah like i i really do think though that um james gray i i we have this trend now where like a lot of filmmakers like a lot of prominent filmmakers are making movies about space and it's easy to see like like alfonso Cuarón made gravity christopher nolan made interstellar damien giselle made first man um i mean obviously you know decades prior stanley kubrick made 2001 a space odyssey but um yeah claire denis claire denis yeah with high life um mm-hmm. so there Which is, is the superior version of this film in every single uh, way no. i disagree but um yeah yeah i mean but i think to me like i think like why i like a lot of those i like, like all of them actually uh this one i think just like even though it's i think a messier film than a lot of those films and i think it, it doesn't nail everything because I do think there's a lot of studio meddling with this. Like I thought the narration at times was really effective and chilling uh, and haunting in a kind of Terrence Malick intended way. But other times it felt like kind of like the Blade Runner theatrical cut where it was like mm-hmm. just explicitly saying the obvious either because like they had the trim like 20 minutes down or like it felt like like for some reason like they thought like, oh, like this moody, silent, contemplative style would would elude audiences, which I mean. It's frustrating, but it, if Disney's involved, I guess that's what's going to happen. Um, but besides, like, even though it does feel like a um, kind of metal film in that regard, I do think James Gray influence was very apparent throughout the film. And I think even though it isn't quite as structurally sound as some of the films I mentioned, the themes of the film and the way that the movie is put together just really affected me in a way that uh, I haven't really felt in a movie in a while. It just like. The way that was able to absorb me, I think what it says about uh, grief and loneliness, like while those are themes that have obviously been tackled a lot, especially with the space genre, like it felt a lot more poignant to me and a lot more earnest and uh, authentic in a way that I think really hit home to me, especially in like the middle segments. And maybe that's just because I haven't seen Solaris and James Gray's past two films, but it just... I, I thought Bradley's. I I totally disagree with you about Brad Pitt's performance. I thought it was exceptional, um, and I thought yeah. that he like it was able to be subtle while also communicating a lot. And I thought like his scene like in the uh, like what he does actually show 
uh, brackets of emotion, like when he's like communicating with his father, were a lot more affecting because he was so he need to be or he was so reserved in so many moments that when like those hit, like they were a lot more affecting to me. And I think in the way that I think a lot of people were affected by Ryan Gosling's performance in First Man. And I was only able to be to an extent. Um, yeah, I, I can definitely see the problems with this film. I don't think it's perfect by any means, but I think it just in terms of even though it's a very reserved uh, kind of moody film, like I thought the emotions of it just really rang true to me. And uh, yeah, I found it very affecting. I, I think I probably would have liked this film or Brad Pitt in general a lot more if I had not seen First Man last year, because I think what Ryan Gosling does in that movie was just more affecting for me. I, I thought that he handled that sort of like reserve stoicness in a way that felt more human to me than in, in this. I just, all I saw was a performance for the most part, but I, I don't, I don't want to mm. completely dismiss it because I do, th- I do think there are certain scenes that he, he does carry pretty well when, when he animates a little bit more, when he short, he sort of like stresses through his acting and not the voiceover, what this like extended space travel is doing to him. Uh, that, that those sort of scenes really were affecting, but yeah, for whatever reason, I just I just couldn't connect with him on any sort of like meaningful level in the way that I wanted to. But I I, I do want to mm. say some of the things I really like. Uh, the things I like the most about this film, I think, are the set pieces. I, I've seen some complaints that they do feel a little like off balance. Maybe some of the studio meddling has something to do with this, where there's not a lot of transition between we have like space travel and then something kind of actiony or horror-y will happen. Which I, John I thought that was effective. I, I actually like those scenes too. They, I just liked that they sort of broke up the monotony a bit and they sort of like made they, they made they made the stakes feel a little bit more real and urgent and it, it felt like space was more dangerous than routine, which I mm-hmm. thought was interesting. Yeah, like I mean like I could definitely see that complaint, but I feel like like they set most of the stuff up, but like the way that they're executing the film, like because they feel like all of a sudden in that way it felt more authentic. Like it it's not like they didn't like set them up just like all of a sudden like there's an explosion or like all of a sudden like we're having a space chase in Mars or on the moon. And it's just like that, like they felt more realistic in that sense, I guess. Like, I mean, none of this is really realistic per se, but it's like like the, the way that they were executed. Like, I thought those were, yeah. But yeah, I, just, I thought the way that um, I, I like that it was kind of like elevated like that. And I do like that there wasn't really a lot of transitions like that because um as our character kind of loses himself in the recesses of space, I thought, and like kind of loses track of time. This movie really, I thought communicated that aspect of it. Well, like his mental psyche, as far as like, just not really knowing like where he is, like why he's doing this, why he's going on this pursuit, but like knowing emotionally, even though he is fairly reserved, they has to do this. Like it's such a complicated thing, but I think the movie just communicates that so well. Yeah. I just disagree in the communication aspect of it, but, uh, that's okay, because I disagree with you about Ryan Gosling. So, yeah, I thought that was more of a performance <laughs> than authentic. I do want to say things I liked about this one. Um, I do think the cinematography this is Hoyt Van Hotema, who really didn't get enough credit, I think, for both her and Interstellar, which are two films hmm. that I, I and yeah. Dunkirk, too, I should say. The, all three of those films are ones that are just shot so beautifully and shot in a way that where they just bring the universe building. I like using that word now where they bring the universe building kind of to our level where nothing feels gimmicky. Nothing feels like 
so shot just for like, oh, look at space. Isn't it nice? It actually has like meaning and purpose. Like he uses shots of space to portray like emptiness, loneliness. Th- things are really positioned correctly or like in a way that just has weight and, and ways that make you feel, even when there are some absurd things that happen in this movie. And there there's some weirdly <laughs> absurd stuff that happens, especially toward the end of this one. I, I, I bought into it just because the way it, it, it flowed along and, and the way that he kind of like, I don't know. There was a vision behind the camera here that comes through. So those are the things I really like. Um, I want to turn it over to you, Sam. What, what were the things you really yeah. liked about this film? Like, what was it about this film that just pushed it above the cut? Like, pushed it above those films that you know you've liked this year, but just didn't quite reach that zenith for you? Can I say everything? <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Okay. Yes. Well. Uh, so uh, th- I'll I'll say this first. Uh, you both have been bringing up First Man a lot, um, and uh, I'm saying this not as a way of like you know not to not to brag or talk down to you. I was not really thinking of First Man at all as I was watching this movie. Partly because I just tried not to think of other movies as much as I can when watching something, but also because. Um, in my mind, and just as for in case you don't know, which you probably do, uh, I am a huge, huge sci-fi nerd. Uh, I especially love the ones that take place in space. Um, for whatever reason, my brain have sort of starkly set these two apart because First Man is like uh, Apollo 13 and like, or yeah, like Apollo 13 before it uh, is science nonfiction so to speak, Uh, whereas this is starkly science fiction. It is set uh, in an unspecified near future, which is a phrase that gets used a lot, but it's it's good shorthand for uh, things have sort of progressed in one such direction that maybe has been prophesized. And in this case, it's this near future that we've all uh, that we've all sort of thought about, like, you know, what is what's it going to be like, you know, 50, 100, 1,000 years in the future uh, when essentially, uh, not to reference the same thing twice, but we've sort of gotten to the Futurama state of things where uh, space travel is sort of an incidental part of life. Um, and it hasn't really, in Ad Astra, it hasn't gotten to that point yet. The moon is only like, is has only just recently been colonized and they're only starting on Mars uh, relatively recently, or at least that's a vibe I got. Um what I got out of it is not so much that uh, that we're you know expanding, we're moving beyond our earthly bounds. Um, it's that we've run up against this existential brick wall in which we're all realizing, uh, maybe very slowly or maybe very immediately, that uh, essentially space is lame that there's sort of nothing really out there for us because the whole deal with this movie um that and that i think is very showing that it hasn't really gotten mentioned a lot in this review that we're doing um is that we're uh this uh, space station or whatever it's called that tommy lee jones is out is designed to sort of uh sniff out intelligent life in the far reaches of the cosmos and the fact that it just has not found anything i can tell is really depressing and has really infected all of the world and i get this uh this sort of philosophical portrait that reminded me more than any other movie you've already mentioned it of andre tarkovsky's solaris uh which is a movie that in my interpretation at least is very vehemently anti-space travel in the sense that 
what Tarkovsky wants to say is that all that's out there for us in the infinite void of space is just pain and and uh things that we can't even conceive of uh, uh that we can't even conceive of that will destroy us from the inside and that will kind of be the end of it there are shots of space in this movie where i just realize like man Brad Pitt gets like, I know he has a little jetpack thing, but in principle, he gets knocked out in a direction. That's it. Like if he has nothing, he'll just drift out forever and that'll be a no one will ever see him again. It is this infinite void that maybe, just maybe, we're not allowed, that we're not meant to go out there. The cosmos are not designed for human exploration and we can, we should count ourselves lucky that we even get to witness it in sort of, uh, in a, in a, in a way of, uh, you know, oh my goodness, look at how beautiful and infinite it is. And it's also terrifying and we can't breathe in it and it will kill us if we're not equipped with just the highest state of the art, uh, technology that we've spent millennia developing. Um, we shouldn't, by all rights, we shouldn't even be able to handle the notion that it just sort of goes on forever beyond our atmosphere. But here we are. And uh, I think where I uh, end up sort of leaning towards the positive side of this movie, where I hear a lot of people leaning towards the negative side, is Brad Pitt. Um I'm looking at his character on more of a macro level, I suppose, as sort of a representation of everything I was just talking about, uh, in the sense that life has lost all meaning, essentially. Like, not, you know, not uh, explicitly, like, everyone is just depressed all the time. But the fact that there's nothing out there is disheartening, in a way. I didn't even mean to do that, but that was sort of a pun on the way that nothing excites him anymore like that he's an astronaut and the fact that it'll sort of just end and that'll be it and we won't really find anything that that's kind of destroyed all sense of human spirits he sort of sees the writing on the wall of humanity that it's going to end here and it's this spiritual journey to find what he slowly comes to realize is what we do have, and this is another comparison to Solaris, is uh, to to use sort of a poetic image that I think the movie uses very nicely, the outstretched hand of our fellow human. That is what we have, and that is what we're not cherishing enough. Uh, and it took an expedition to the furthest reaches of the solar system to to realize it and appreciate it. That is, uh, that's what I dug about this movie. Uh and that's the reason why I really, really loved it. And in spite of the flaws I may had, I wasn't thinking about them because I was so gosh dang wrapped up into into the into the uh, philosophy of it all. And it's I didn't think a movie like this would be made in uh, in like in uh, this era, at least. And I'm amazed that it did. And so in this economy. I can't, I can't praise it enough. So I've, I've said enough, but that's, that's kind of it in a gigantic cosmic nutshell. That is what I think of it. Mm. I want to piggyback off of the main thing you brought up there, which is this whole thing of like, there's nothing out there for us. And I had the same takeaway. I think that theme is very effective because my, my interpretation of this film and not to get into spoilers or anything like that, but 
it, it really is a film about how you can go really deep into space. And like you said, it's not meant for us, but we have so many problems here. It's like, why are we looking to the stars, which is what Ad Astra means, mm. to solve our problems? We think that it's going to fix the problems we have on Earth. But the big theme of the movie is that, well, if you go to the moon, you go to Mars, you go to Neptune and all these places, you bring humans into the equation, those problems just go to those places too. Uh, I thought mm -hmm. that's when the film yeah. really came alive for me is when we see yeah. that the first time in the moon base where you're like, yeah, it's like, it's just a mall. It's like a strip mall. And like, <laughs> yeah. we can go, there's no utopia for us until we actually stay on earth and we address our problems head on. And I liked how the idea behind the screenplay is like that mirrors Brad Pitt's, you know, the big thing for his character is like, he really, he disbelieves closure with his father is going to solve all of his problems. And my, my issue isn't with the theme itself. Cause I think that's pretty powerful. I just, I just think it comes off as very one note and, and, and I just, it, it didn't come together mm. for me. It just, to me, it, it was very, it was a long roundabout way to get to a very simple, but interesting point. And I just, I, I don't like to say this about movies because maybe my mind will change, but I really thought like the third act of this movie, long stretches of it were just, they were just plain boring. Like I, it, it doesn't take a lot for me to not be bored by really good sci-fi movies, but once I stopped caring about Brad Pitt in this movie, which was pretty early, I, I just I just didn't like seeing him constantly. It's just there's no there's no rhythm I could find between him and any other characters. The best parts of this movie I thought were when he actually gets to talk to other characters or he's actually doing the the psych evaluation, but. The, those scenes are just so few and far between. And instead we're just over and over again. It's just him reflecting on his father. I just got sick of it. I was like, I just, mm. I get that you miss your dad, but I just stopped giving a damn after a while. <laughs> like it, it was just too much. And I, I think it's an editing thing or I don't know what it is, but th there was just something about this movie by the time it ended where I was like, I saw it all, everything that was going to happen coming except for like one particular thing that was like, okay. But yeah, th there were just things about this film that just, really let me down in terms of like not what we were not why we were seeing things but what we were seeing exactly and i understand i'm in the minority on this opinion and i think people are appreciating it beyond those things that i'm i'm just personally seeing so it seems like will from the sound of your rumps that uh, I didn't you, have did, you did not have the same impression <laughs> uh that was all me yeah i was gonna say um no i mean i there is something i kind of agree with you in that i hear a lot of people say like the ending is what's most affecting some and to me i'm actually kind of like i think I really loved like the first like 80% of it, like the ending I like, but I can kind of take or leave it as far as like, um, like, I don't think the ending, like to me, it's like the inverse in that. Like, I think first man, like the space, everything in the moon is like fantastic. And I just kind of wish the movie was on that level throughout. Like, I think everything about like it nailed, like as, as some problems I have with the rest of the movie, I think it nails the ending. And like this, I'm kind of like backwards. Where I think like the nuances in the perspective that makes that encompasses like the like three fourths of the film or like 90 minutes of it, I think are really, really affecting. And I just don't think it exactly nails the ending, but I also don't think the ending is bad. And that I, I think what you're saying is what I like about it is that like, yeah, it is like a simple message for him. And it, it is like, you know, like he's going a long way to learn something he should have known at home, but that's like the point, like that's like his journey. Like that's his intent. Like he is going a long way to know, to learn something that he should have known like a long time ago. And I think to me, what made the film so affecting was that I, I, I guess when we were talking about it, I thought about more like, um, I guess the reason why a lot of filmmakers, I guess, attract 
or get attracted to the idea of space-based movies that I guess they see a lot of themselves in that, in that, like, when you compare this to, like, Neil Armstrong, to me, it's like the anti-Neil Armstrong, where, like, when Neil Armstrong went to the moon, it's, like, a very heroic, courageous thing, and uh, Damon Chazelle was, like, trying to find the humanity in that, whereas this, like, he, like, James Gray, I mean, like, he's, like, looking at it as, like, going to space in this world is, like, not courageous. It's, like, the exact opposite. It's kind of, like, a cowardly thing to do to go to space to ignore your problems to like like the people who go to space in this world are like trying to avoid things that they just don't want to deal with and like the fact that he is going to like his heart to get away from it is just like a beautiful i think parallel there that i really was affected by and uh yeah i mean i just thought like i I think for like going back to my earlier point like i think filmmakers just i think they're attracted to something about the idea of like there is something very glorified about going to space there is something very romantic about it uh, as far as like how we see in the media and films but at the same time it's very a procedural job like it's very mathematic it's very like kind of precise but like for filmmakers like it seems like it's a very glorified thing but it's a lot of like making sure like the plane doesn't explode like metaphorically it's like just making sure like everything's kind of going to plan and like trying to get to the destination but like you don't know if the destination is going to work like like with movies like you know like you could spend two years of your life trying to make a movie and it could just be like a mediocre thing that gets 50 percent on Rotten Tomatoes and no one ever talks about it. And there's something kind of depressing and sad about that. And I think that's what filmmakers appreciate about the aspect of space. Maybe it's me projecting too much onto it. But I see something in that in Ad Astra. And I think to me, that's what makes James Gray's movie here seem very personal and heartfelt, even though it is kind of has a cold, sullen demeanor. But I don't know. I like the cold, sullen demeanor. It made it feel like more absorbing and made it feel like more authentic to how I'm proposed, I, I feel I'm supposed to perceive Brad Pitt's character in this film, who I never really found boring, to be told. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about this film from like a, an awards perspective. Could you see this, Sam? The thing that matters the most. Like, I, I want to know. I, 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 I know, think it's I know, interesting. I, <laughs> I think it's interesting that it's like a standalone original film. Sam, do you think this has a chance of being nominated for Best Picture? Do you think it, it it's going to rise to that level for like the Academy? Well, if we're being technical, any movie has a chance to be nominated, but uh, if if I'm going a good chance, yes. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say because um, I think uh, what happened uh, not too long ago, I'm not sure of the exact date, but I know that the Academy made a conscious decision to dramatically expand like their voting uh, body in such a way that they were recognizing different kinds of movies uh, than they had before. It also helps that, you know, for the past decade or so, they've been nominating, uh, you know, eight, nine or 10 movies for best picture rather than five. Um, but I know that uh, th- this is all to say that they have not been shying away from recognizing uh, sci-fi movies recently. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road comes to mind Rabbit. as does uh arrival yeah gravity um so i could certainly see it it's it's got the it's got the uh it's got the critical acclaim for it it's got the uh what's the word it's got the pedigree just the the filmmakers behind it for it i can see it um i have no impact on it whatsoever so uh it's kind of a moot point here but yeah i would love nothing more than if this got a ton of awards attention attracting even more uh even more viewers into the theater what do you think will is it just is it just going to show up at uh is it going to get the first man treatment you think where it's like okay you find you can get like a couple of technicals and that's about it that's more where i think it's going to happen i mean it's one of those things where it's like if it does get a lot of oscar attention it doesn't surprise me but if it doesn't get a lot of oscar attention it, do- it also doesn't surprise me 
<laughs> um, it's one of those things where it's like, I do think like my guess is that the Academy is going to be like just I mean, this is just me projecting and assuming. I don't know. But my guess is that they're going to be like, well, it's pretty, but I just don't get what it's about. And it's just like they're going to be mm. like, oh, well, like, obviously, like, I think like they'll they'll probably recognize I hope they recognize like best cinematography, probably best sound design, best sound mixing uh set design i can imagine um just like that those technical stuff i can see i hopefully score too because we haven't talked enough about the score which i think is one of my favorites of the year <laughs> yeah. um yeah i was i was listening to the score i'm like wow this reminds me of the arrival score this is pretty neat turns out same composer yeah so, so i really yeah, I, I, I think i like the score a little more than the rival one though i have what was that i just said his name max richter yeah oh, okay yeah but i don't know i mean I don't see it getting like best screenplay and I don't know. Best picture seems like a long shot. And then I know Brad Pitt is um, he's apparently not campaigning for any Oscar attention. Uh, so I'm guessing that means as a producer as well as as an actor. Um, so that could limit the chances of this movie getting some award consideration. I feel like they'll probably just nominate him for best supporting, even though he is technically a lead in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, I imagine they'll probably give him, like, a Best Supporting nomination for that. And it'll be, like, a twofer. It's, like, this is also your nomination for Ad Astra. Kind of like how when Alicia Vikander won for... I don't think I don't think Brad Pitt's going to win either way. But, like, when she won for Danish Girls, like, oh, yeah, that's also your Oscar for um, the sci-fi film uh, Ex Machina. Ex Machina, yeah. Yeah, it was like, it's, like, a twofer. I feel like that's what's maybe going to happen here. But I could see it getting some some serious consideration in the technical fields. All right. Well, let's, let's do our final thoughts then and grade this. I'll, I'll start since I'm the Debbie Downer here. I just think that it's, yeah, I, I just don't think it's, it's a masterpiece of filmmaking. And I, th- I think it's masterful in some ways. though. I, I think that as I've already mentioned, there are things about it that are pretty spectacular and breathtaking. And I, I kind of like what it's going for. I, I just think the way that it leans into its daddy issues, it just, at this point, felt a little strained to me. It, it felt a little listless to me. And, and, and I think, I think, as I said before, it just feels like a movie that would have probably been more affecting 20 years ago when this hadn't been done to death in the last 15 years. And mm. I, I think, I think ultimately what it comes down to with the Brad Pitt thing is I just think that maybe, maybe it's me just, I've seen him be so good as a supporting actor in so many films and just kind of okay as a lead in other films. Like I'm thinking of Benjamin Button things like that, that, I almost, I almost kind of find this to be like a really good B plot in a better film where like you're following mm. Brad Pitt as the stoic guy and like he has his own reasons for the mission, but you're really following somebody else who's just a little bit more interesting, you know? And, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not trying to say that to, to diminish Brad Pitt in any way. I, I definitely think he's a bona fide movie star. He's a successful movie star for a reason. And I really support a lot of, uh, the things that he's done, maybe not in his personal life, but with plan B and how he's mm. elevated other filmmakers. <laughs> and I, I think that he's a kind of, he's a great case study in, uh, a very successful Hollywood career in, in ways that benefit other people over the last 20, 25, 30 years since he kind of broke in. And uh, I, I'm definitely I'm definitely a supporter of this movie in general. People watching it, having their own opinion on it. It's I don't think it's super original, but it at least is kind of like an it's an original premise. It's not it's not a film banking on IP that doesn't make it a very, in my opinion, ultimately creative movie. But I don't want to say that like definitively because there's creative stuff in here. I think some of the set pieces are very creative and some of the set design and, and what they choose for the costumes are very creative. But in terms of like what it's about, 
I just I see so many other films in this that uh, I wonder where's the Ad Astra cut? Let's get the Ad Astra. I want to see James Gray's Unfiltered Vision because I I really liked Lost City of Zed. I, I thought that was a film that actually did do, in my opinion, a better job of balancing the sort of like daddy issues in a way that felt a little bit more, I, I guess, just for lack of a better word, interesting and engaging for me uh, personally. So. I like the movie. I think it's worth seeking out. I think it's worth seeing definitely on a big screen. So uh, I'm going to give this one a very solid B. And that that is like really me just taking the for things Brad I really Pitt. don't like about this film and and, nom- and just downing it. Yes, B for Brad Astra. So that, that's where I'm at. <laughs> but uh, Sam, please Plan B. Tell, tell, us all about, uh, tell us all about your B+. No, I'm kidding. I'm sure it's going to be higher than that. Uh it is a little bit higher than that. I'm going to give this a very, very high A minus. Um, it's, uh, I, th- I think, uh, what, what we've learned here, if anything, um, is that it's your connection with, you know, Brad Astra, as everyone calls him, is going to be sort of the make or break thing with whether it's, uh, good or great. I haven't heard anyone like downright dislike or hate this movie, but maybe I'm just not looking hard enough. I have. Um, yeah, I've, I've definitely heard people not like it. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, I guess I don't pay attention enough, and uh, and you know what? I'm not going to apologize for that because uh, nor should uh, you. That's that's a whole different thing. Yes, thank you, thank. You. Um, but yeah, I think I I looked at the two different uh, aspects of this movie, so to speak. You know, the personal thing and the macro lens. I looked at it as more of a symbiotic thing, and I found that very rewarding. Um, so yeah, this is this gets a very high A minus from me. Uh, certainly one of my favorites of the year, and I'll be surprised if this doesn't make it onto my uh, year-end list. But we still got uh, just over three months to go, so who knows? All right, and Will Ashton, it's all on you. What What is your grade for this one? What What do you think of that, Astra, now that we've talked about it? Yeah, um... Will Astra? Yeah, you've said that joke already. <laughs> I know. I wanted to <laughs> say right, it again. fine. Um, yeah, I was between a B plus and A minus, because like I said... Uh, I do think it's it doesn't come together as well as I think it should. Like, I do think this isn't like the definitive cut. And I agree with you. Like one of my first thoughts after leaves the film was like, I really hope there's like a final cut like Blade Runner in the future where we can kind of get a better idea of what I presume uh, James Gray, like really wanted the film to be outside of uh, meddling from either 20th Century Fox or Disney. Um, but that said, I do think the movie really works on its own. Like, I think this cut really does hold together. I think the themes of the film really resonated with me. I thought, like you said, the um, visuals, uh, not only just in terms of cinematography, but just like the sets and just like the different uh, visual flares that they have in the film uh, really stood out to me. And I do 100% agree that even I would say to anybody, even if you don't think this is going to be your thing, see this in theaters. And I would say as soon as possible, if you can, I saw in Dolby, I would highly recommend if you can see in Dolby or IMAX. Um, yeah. Or, but I mean, and sit close to the screen too. Oh, I don't know about that, but I mean, I do. All right, all right. Well, you hear two different things. <laughs> don't want to lose your, don't want to hurt your neck. Of course. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this seems. I I generally feel like the farther back is better for most theater experiences, but teach their own. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I I agree with John. I I feel like that that hurts your neck after a while, but um. No, I, I definitely you think gotta, you got to choose your row wisely. That's my advice. Uh, just do whatever you feel like, people. So as long as you don't hurt anybody. <laughs> That's all I say. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here from from good old Will. Um, but in any case, uh, outside of that tangent, yeah, I was just gonna say. I mean, 
I highly recommend people because I want more movies like this. And I feel like like you guys were saying earlier, like it feels kind of bittersweet and that I don't think we're going to get a lot of movies like this on this scale anymore. And I think that also softened me to the film outside of some of its flaws. Like, I do think this feels like the type of film that we're going to get less and less of. And that that worries me and that, that makes me depressed. Um, so I really want this movie to do as well as it can. And I think general audiences, I'm going to assume, are just not going to dig this. So I can't see it being in theaters for terribly long. So I would say if you can see in theaters sooner as opposed to later, do it. Uh, because I do think, like, even if you don't really like the film, I think people are going to dig or they're going to get something out of it. Like, I think they're going to find some interesting ideas. Like, I don't think it's going to be a complete waste. Like, I think they're going to find something kind of interesting as far as like our listeners. Cause I do think a lot of them will find something to be intrigued by or uh, be invested in. And ultimately, yeah. um, I, I don't agree with you about Brad Pitt, but I I agree that like generally his more, the performances of his, I enjoy more like kind of the more emotional or the more um, supporting roles. Like I do think like, like Burn After Reading, I think is one of his best performances or Glorious Bastards. Like those like those films, like I think like they stand out a little bit more. But I do think while I don't think this is like a like top five performance by him, I think it's really good in that it feels like his better performances in this and in um, Once Upon a Time Hollywood. I think he connects to the characters in a way that feels like outside of his work. Um, kind of similar to what I was saying about James Gray and filmmaking. I think he relates to this guy that like like being a movie star seems really glamorous and nice and extraordinary, but I think there is something kind of melancholy about it. Like I think especially for like a guy like middle-aged and divorced, like he is like, I feel like it's probably pretty lonely and sad for a lot of it. Like you don't really like, like you can't really talk about that with a lot of people. Like, like not a lot of people can really understand what it's like to be Brad Pitt. And I think he puts that into his performance here. Like not a lot of people can really understand like what a person goes through, like when they're in space. And how kind of lonely and isolating alien it is. And I thought that really stood out as well as far as his performance was concerned. So, yeah, I'm going to give it uh, a solid B or a solid A minus. Um, I, I could see that grade changing if I saw like a definitive cut of this film. And that was like just exceptional. But as far as what we got here and what we have in our hands, I think A minus seems like a pretty, pretty good grade for me. All right. Yeah. I, what I like about this movie is that it is generally polarizing, but not so polarizing that, I mean, there are people who really don't like the movie, but there's a lot of people who are kind of mixed on how good it is, which is always fun to talk about. It has an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes after, out of 254 reviews. So you can kind of mm. see there, like a lot of people really like it, but there's some disagreement on like how good they think it really is. And I think that's interesting. And the cinema score is also uh, kind of revealing. It's a B minus, just right. pretty low. And I, th- I think a lot that's of people- higher than anticipated. Well, I think a lot of people are getting something different out of this movie than they expect. Brad Pitt kind of, uh, he, he kind of did some guerrilla marketing for this movie to an audience that was probably <laughs> like, ooh, rad space blockbuster. And even though it is very much like it's got blockbuster trappings, it really is like a blockbuster with like a, an indie sci-fi film, like mm-hmm. buried inside of it. Or you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's wearing like blockbuster, like armor mm-hmm. almost, but uh, n- yeah. Not in a way that I think is bad. I-, I think it's really nice that we can start seeing more indie films have like blockbuster budgets. And to what you were saying before, I hope it's I hope it's successful. It just has a really really high budget. I think because of how expensive some of these actors are. 
but it does stand a decent chance because there isn't a lot of other films coming out the next few weeks that will compete very directly with it, especially in this genre. I think it, I think it has a real chance of breaking even at the box office, if not making a little bit of money. So I hope that is the case because I, I like the idea of original films, even if I find them a little bit flawed, to do pretty well. And I also want to point other people to the other film that came out this year that's called Ad Astra, but instead of Ad Astra, it's To the Stars, which is what that literally means. And that is the film To the Stars, which premiered at Sundance. And I don't think it's going to get a release anytime soon in the US, but uh, it's like a black and white film that takes place in Oklahoma. And it could not be any more different than this movie for sure. But uh, <laughs> I like that film um, probably about the same, if not a little bit more than Ad Astra for completely different reasons. So that said, that's Ad Astra. Yeah. Really, really solid grades from everybody. Any final thoughts before we finish out this episode? Yeah, just I uh, just to to sort of put it in perspective when it comes to this movie being a blockbuster. It's a blockbuster in the way that like Blade Runner twenty forty nine is right, uh, which is and oh, yeah, Blade Runner twenty forty nine is a significantly more action packed movie than this is. And if you know how little action is in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, you know that's uh, you know that uh, says a lot. I think they're about the same action wise. Um, Oh, I don't know about that. There's like there's like some extended action sequences in Blade Runner too. There's like they three, are pretty maybe this, yeah. one minute things in Ad Astra. Um, the other thing I want to mention because I haven't not I have not gotten a chance to talk about it on a podcast yet, and now is as good a time as any. Uh, Ad Astra, only the second best outer space movie of this year, uh, in my opinion, at least the fir- the best one is a, uh, a little Swedish movie. Oh. No, not High Life. Although this is a good year for space, it's Lucy uh, in the so, Sky. We, we still got a few more. I haven't seen that <laughs> yet. It it's doesn't exist not very yet, good, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, well, well uh, I'll have to find that sure. out for myself. Will early uh, buzz but, is not great. Yeah. yeah. Well, glad glad that I know that now. But anyways, you're glad um, Astra. Okay, continue, please. Yes, 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 yes. I am. Uh, I am uh, John Sambo of the of the Vietnam War. Whatever. What and. Uh, like Rambo? Uh, it was a pun. I was, yeah, <laughs> Sambo. But anyways. Uh, all right. The best uh, space movie of the year is a Swedish uh, sci-fi space movie called Aniara, which is one of my favorite movies of the year. And it is getting no attention. And I'm the only one that's seen it. And I love it. So check that out immediately. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Sambo Lastra Blood. Yes, yes. You're welcome, Major John. Uh, okay so ground control to major john oh i thought you were going for like major because his name is major roy mcbride um Uh, i I will take being part of david bowie's songwriting yes there you go okay that'll do it for this week's episode of cinemaholics got to a lot of films this week but i think for the better some good discussion here thank you sam of course for joining the show and if you'd like to connect with any of us on social media including sam of course our twitter profiles are in the show notes along with all the social media profiles where you can find cinemaholics in general the links to everything we talked about at the beginning of the show as well and we'll see you next week to talk about uh there's two films coming out judy the judy garland biopic and abominable the animated i think it's dreamworks film and I'm not uh, really looking forward to either of the film, but we'll probably be we'll probably have a good chance to talk about both films. And of course, if you have anything you'd like to recommend us to talk about or review on the show, please go to cinemahawks.com, go to the comment section for this episode, and let us know what you think about this episode and what you want to see next, and all your questions, all that fun stuff. And again, our email is cinemahawkspodcast at gmail.com, so you can hit us up that way as well. 
That'll do it for us this week from the internet, California. I am John Agroni. From the internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. And from the internet space, I'm Sam. (laughs) See you next time.